Okay. Um, good night. Oh, is that okay? Um, hey, everybody. Um, this is the Vamp Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Hunter, aka Janterville. We got the Nerd Z and Del Pesh here. Hello, hello. Zakia, you there? Sorry, I'm just busy doing stuff. Hi. Okay. And um, this month, we were talking a lot about finances and money and different ways to save, invest, and different things that we don't know much about when it comes to money. And um, this is the last, um, I guess the last Sunday, which is the last week, last day of the month that we're talking about it. And we have um, two... um, what like financial specialists if i may call it i don't know like mortgage and we have um silva gonzalez and we got jerome saint bernard sure um good evening good evening good evening thank you guys first off for coming um i know you guys it's late you guys could be anywhere in the world and you're here with us so i just want to say thank you guys for being here no problem yeah um (laughs) and um so tell us about yourself. Um, I would say, Jerome, you could go first. Uh, sure. So uh, my name, as you said, is Jerome St. Bernard. I work for a company called Vine Group. Uh, so Vine Group is a mortgage team under Mortgage Alliance, currently the number one team in Canada for mortgages. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And Silva. <laughs> uh, my name is Silva Gonzalez. And, um, you know, I'm... I'm more of a, of a regular guy. So some of the stuff that I'll, uh, I'll tell you guys, I think it's repeatable and formulaic. You know, when I talk about how I've kind of built financial stability, I think it's something that, uh, you know, the average person can, can do. I'll talk about how to be a disciplined investor, how to save, how to uh, generate income, and really just kind of how to put yourself on a path towards financial stability. I'm uh, not a first-generation Canadian. I migrated here in about 1990. So again, wasn't, uh, wasn't really born with any special assets or anything like that, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, raised by a single mother and really just kind of went through the process, listened to a lot of what, uh, the older people around me told me about working hard, getting education, saving, and it paid off. So I'm just going to share that story and hopefully it works for someone else too. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What are your guys' backgrounds? Uh, so I am uh, Grenadian, actually born in Canada, the only person in my family born in Canada, but uh, Grenadian, still family in Grenada, still go there fairly, fairly often. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm obviously from a, a few, few kilometers south. I'm from Trinidad. Just, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> okay. our big brother. You know, yeah, <laughs> the, only place, the only place south of, south of Grenada is still in the Caribbean. Um, so I'll, I'm from Trinidad. I was born there, but I've been raised in Canada most of my life. So probably been here. Since about 1990, yeah. Because yeah, I'm, I'm half Trinidadian, so half Trinidadian, half uh, St. Vincent, so. Okay. It's a small island podcast, it sounds like. I know, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. I'm Jama- I'm, my background is Jamaican, but I was born here, so. Uh, you had to be the big island over there. <laughs> course, <the> host. <laughs> <laughs> I know, unfortunately, it's crazy. Um, and um, what was your favorite food as a kid? Ooh, good question. So I want to say oil down, which is my our national dish there in, in mm. Grenada with our bread fruit. Uh, but being raised in Canada, I'm going to go with the North American answer, which is pizza. You can never go wrong with pizza for me as, as a kid. Um, so, yeah, pizza I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with. Okay. My, um, that is the number one answer. That's the, yeah. It's, it's you know, 
My uh, my favorite food when I was little is um, it's a Trinidadian dish called uh, tomato choca with saltfish. Mm-hmm. It's a quick, easy dish. It's not even one of those like big Sunday dinner ones. It's one you can kind of fry up really quick any morning, and that's probably mm-hmm. still uh, still my favorite thing. And then one of my favorite Canadian uh, guilty pleasures is Swiss chalet. I love chalet. So wow. Okay. Oh wow. Chalet, <laughs> that's very Canadian. Yeah. That's an acquired yeah. Canadian taste. Yeah. Yeah. Swiss chalet. Yeah. Can't hit on it really. Yeah. Yeah, when I'm ready, you know, sometimes Swiss Chalet is a go-to, man. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. me. <laughs> and um, um, tell us your journey to financial stability. Uh, yeah, so for me, um, I guess I, I wouldn't say I started as a real estate investor. I just started as someone looking to get into real estate. I had a friend of mine who was doing really well as a mortgage broker who actually got me my first property. And... I think that we are actually blessed to live in a place such as Toronto, where real estate has kind of always been booming. Um, every now and then you'll see a downturn, with as, as is with any market. But for the most part, Toronto has done very well over the last decade um, in terms of real estate. So I purchased my first property uh, mid-20s, and I was just shocked after a year or two just kind of seeing how much equity I gained, how much appreciation just by sitting it, leaving it there. And when I first got my property, I actually was still living at home uh, with family. I bought it as a rental property, realized it was, uh, I think it was a condo in in Liberty Village. And I said, you know what, this place is too expensive for me to live, but I still want to get my foot in the market, which is kind of some of the advice I give to friends and family. Just get your feet wet. It really helps you out in the long run. But watching the appreciation of my first condo and when it came time to refinance, being able to take out some equity and cash just kind of blew my mind. And that's actually what got me into doing mortgages because I'm like, I had no idea you can do this and you can kind of uh, progress like this in life. And I wanted to spread that knowledge to my peers. So that's kind of my journey and how I started uh, as a mortgage agent. Um, now I own a couple of properties. I'm doing mortgages full time with Vian Group. So that was kind of my journey and just kind of seeing it as an individual who just wanted to get their feet wet into making a career. That's really good. Wow. Yeah, I know, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, no, if you guys want to follow up with some questions, go for it. I'll, I can go for mine after. No, because I, I know I was, um, I think I was telling Jamie the other day, like, uh, you know, the great project, uh, the Eglinton LRT. So there's a condo yes, where, yes, yes. there's a condo where um, there used to be a dealership there, but now it's like pizza, pizza and the condo. But at one point, um, you were able to get that condo for a, a pretty, really good price. Like I'm talking about low hundreds. And it's like, yeah. So no, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Honestly, anything in real estate that you look at 10 years ago versus now, it just blows your mind. I used to think I was so unique. I'd tell people exactly how much I got it, what it was worth two years till I realized anyone in Toronto, you can ask like your parents. I don't know. I was raised in the East side, Scarborough area. Any of my parents or parents, friends, if you ask them what they bought their house for and what it's worth now, it's, yeah. it's really mind blowing. And it kind of gets the gears going into real estate is really one of the better markets to be in on your path to financial freedom. Um, and I know, Next up, Silva's probably going to talk a lot about the mutual funds, RSPs, maybe maybe even stocks. I'm not sure what he's going to get into, but I think real estate has always been one of the most secure places to put your money. I call it somewhat recession-proof in that even if you saw what happened with the pandemic last year, at, at some point in time, you could see all the stocks kind of taking a sharp dive. Um, and you thought because of the economy, real estate would follow, but it didn't. I mean, the, the, it's still strong, I can get yeah. into why that happened. The, 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 the interest rates went really low and they kind of, 
the, the market was able to stabilize, but real estate didn't drop. And they say in the future, people, whatever happens with the currency, whatever happens with Bitcoin, people are always going to need a place to live. So that's why I kind of think real estate is somewhat recession proof in that sense. Yeah, you know, even being someone who's an equity investor, um, mm-hmm. by discipline, I, I would echo that specifically um, in certain regions, right? So, you know, I don't know what movie it was in, but this guy said, you know, God's not making more earth anytime soon. So when we talk about scarce resources, land is not going to increase. The American market for real estate can fluctuate quite a bit. You can see people mm-hmm. lose money, right? You can see somebody selling a mansion for $180,000, depending on what's going on with their economy. Their economy fluctuates quite a bit. The Canadian economy mm-hmm. is very stable. And if you stick to major city centers like Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa, Vancouver, Edmonton, it really is recession-proof um, mm-hmm. you know, throughout throughout entire human existence humans have constantly migrated towards dense city centers like we're social creatures by nature so when you invest in those areas you really can't lose to be honest with you um i've been looking at some property recently that's on the market for 600k and you can look at the history right it's it's kind of public information the person you know who's selling it out for 600 they bought it for 400 the person they bought from bought it for 200 and that was only like Mm -hmm. 10 years ago right i remember seeing people in Pickering, their family moved in there in the 80s, if you can imagine, and got a townhome for $80,000, if you can imagine, that was possible then, and they were selling it for $320,000 towards the end of the 90s and stuff like that, and it just just keeps going up. So I I would echo that. As far as um, scarcity is concerned, they're not going to make any more land, so if you can invest in land, the demand for it will continue to go up, the supply for it will not. So that's simple economics, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and kind of even just to, to continue off what you're saying, I used to say, and this is pre-pandemic, when everyone's like, where should I invest? I kind of was the same way in saying you should follow where it's densely populated. And my, my cold idea was, you know what, the core of downtown Toronto, you can never go wrong. But it was crazy what happened during the pandemic, because for the first time ever, people were like, I don't want dense populated areas, right? So yeah. that's the first, yeah, the first we've ever even experienced something like that. And you kind of saw in real estate, people didn't want their their little small condos and kind of started going into the suburbs. Pickering was crazy. Ajax was crazy. Durham was crazy because people were realizing, hey, if I'm going to work from home, I might as well get more space. If I'm going right. to have to be home 24-7. So there was a bit of change. And I would say now, today, this, this month and the past month, we're seeing it get back to normal. So even the discounts you may have found briefly downtown core in the condos are now disappearing. People are kind of prepping for, I guess, the vaccines are coming or just normalcy is coming back. So people are kind of going back into the densely populated areas. So it didn't really take take much, right? And you can't really hold real estate back. So 100%, 100% I agree with what Silva's saying. Okay, okay. Um, I'm going to get into some of the, the owning questions. Like um, the first question I have is what is a mortgage? Because I heard about selling houses. I hear these things. I don't know much about it. So like I'll start with like, I guess the basics of like, what yeah, is no, a mortgage? that sounds like a basic question, but you'd be surprised how many people have no idea. They hear, hear mortgage agent, mortgage broker, mortgage, but they don't actually know what it means. So a mortgage is the name for the loan that the bank's going to give you, right? Because you can't house, like say you got a house right now, 500,000, you're not going to pay 500,000. You're going to put a down payment and the bank's going to loan you the rest and you're going to pay it back to them over time. Uh, so my job as a mortgage agent on the broker channel is I have access to 50 to 60 different lenders. Um, the big ones that you know, the Scotias, the TDs, uh, but also monoline lenders, credit credit unions, and, and some other products that you may not have access to if you were to kind of just walk into your bank uh, off the street. So my job is to kind of 
you can call me a matchmaker. Find the individual, find the lender, put you guys two together, find you the best product, the best rate. Um, and, and more than that, strategize, find out what your goals are for the next two to three years so that we can find the best way to get you there and make sure you're not trapped in the wrong bank or wrong situation. So that's what a mortgage is. And that's what I do as, as a mortgage agent. Okay. Um, how important is building up credit? Because as a young, like when I was young, I was always, um, you know, I didn't have the best credit. I could say, you know, going to yeah, college. Most of us don't. Yeah. <laughs> all SAP student loans, all oh, the, the free credit cards, stuff like that. Like, yeah. so now I'm in the process of building credit and it's taking time, but like, how important is it when it comes to like getting houses and stuff like that? For sure. And you know what? You sound like a lot of my friends. So hopefully they're not watching right now, but <laughs> um, it, it's true, man. Like we don't really get this financial training or, or in school. So we kind of have to learn from ourselves or our parents, uh, aunts, uncles, or someone who can mentor us. So I, what Silva said was really good listening to people that are kind of been through this a little bit older than you always can give you some gems. Right. But mm-hmm. uh, in terms of credit, because I have a lot of people my age or a bit younger coming to me now, the first thing we're going to do is find out your credit score, find out if there's any obstacles and then look at how to repair it. And I can tell you now that I've seen credit scores boost over a hundred points in less than a year, right? So if you're disciplined, if you get the right information, it's not the end of the world if you have bad credit, but you want to find out what that credit score is sooner than later, find out what it is so you can start to improve on it. Um, so I tell people, even if you think you're not ready yet, maybe we, we it's, it's still time to meet with me. We can sit down, we can have a discussion find out what the steps are to kind of even get you in the credit position to get you with what's called an A lender. An A lender is a lender that's going to give you the best possible rates. Okay. Okay. Um, how much like, you know, cause you probably see a lot of properties going up condos, houses. For me, when I see Toronto, the first thing that comes to my mind is like, you can't, for me, I don't know based off cause I'm, I'm a carpenter. So based off just looking it doesn't even look like you can really build a house here and there. You could just build up now. That's all you can do. Like condos is just building up for now, whatever space you have. But um, how much money should we save before looking for a house or a condo? So the, the answer is it really depends on your situation. The way that the bank qualifies you is based on your income. So okay. if you have a high enough income to be able to only put 5%, that's awesome. You have that option. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times, if you're not quite there, uh, based on your ratios, you need to save either a higher income uh, or a higher down payment to kind of get you where you need to be. So it's hard to kind of boost your income fast unless you have access to a co-signer, which I, I definitely advise people, if you do have mother, brother, aunt, uncle, who's willing to co-sign for you, it's a great way to kind of boost your income and get your foot in the door. Uh, aside from that, I want to quickly just go over the benefits of getting to the 20% mark, right? So. Mm. The legal minimum is 5% down if you can qualify. Uh, And that's going to get you a loan that's amortized over 25 years. So the length of your mortgage is 25 years. They give you this amount of money. You have 25 years to pay it back. If you get to the... Um, just to just to keep it like clear and easy for your listeners, right? So you're talking about people in the GTA. Um, You're talking Mm -hmm. about 5% down. Um, And, you know, if you start looking, we're talking about upwards of half a million dollars for property, right? So yeah. if someone's thinking about buying property, whether they're 18 or 25 years old, they need to kind of have that in mind. Take a look at the market. You know, if um, 5% down of half a million ends up being about 25K, right? So yeah. you can say that's your, that's your basic, that's your starting line. 
But depending mm-hmm. on what you're going for, if you're looking at condos or whatever, and even 25K may sound crazy to a lot of people, but what that mm-hmm. means is put yourself on a plan to save 5K a year for the next five years, for example. Or if you yeah. live at home yeah. with your parents still, and you're not in a rush to move out, right? Like I'm trying to talk about simple things that everybody can do, right? If you want to live a little longer and you can save 10K a year because, you know, you, you keep up on some of mom's cookings and don't have some of your own bills, you can probably exactly. do 10K a year for five years, right? So if you think about somebody mm-hmm. who just graduated school, instead of running out to live on their own and go start renting so they can go like drink and party, if they decide to stay at home a little longer, it's going to be a lot easier to save for that down payment. Because again, the numbers we're looking at, we're talking about somewhere between 25 and 50K to get you started. As Jerome was saying, that's the 5% line. So someone should be on a plan where they think they can save maybe at least 5K a year um, to start, you know, if, if their dream is home ownership. For sure. And then even just to add to that, what I what I tell people is try to do what I call a phantom mortgage, right? If you have the option to stay at home, that's like the, the best possible. Don't be in a rush to, that's probably the number one mistake people, young people, they want to move out, they want to start being independent. If you can just stay home an extra year or two, let's say your 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 rent was going to be 2000 a month and you say, you know what, I'm going to stay at home, start putting that 2000 a month aside, pretend you bought a place and you're going to pay that off as your mortgage. Boom. After one year, you have 12,000, two years, you have 24,000 that you're just putting there. That becomes your down payment. And now you kind of get used to how your life will look when you have to put that amount of money out every month. So it's a really good advice. I I agree to that. Um, I just want to say thank you both for tag teaming and jumping into this, because sometimes when you hear the the price, it's like 25,000. It's kind of like it's overwhelming at first. I'm like, oh, yeah. You're like, I better go on Wheel of Fortune. I need to go win. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or try to get the Lotto Max numbers or something, right? And then it's like, yeah. when you break it down for year to year, it's 5,000, five years. You know what I mean? It, yeah. You, and then you start breaking it down to 12 months. Yeah. It, it's more obtainable. You know, it's impossible. Yeah. You, you mm-hmm. don't need to, to get that Acura as your first car. Maybe you don't need <laughs> to move out, you know, right away. And these decisions start as early as you want, right? If you're looking at colleges, universities, again, some people, you might want to go away to, to Western or Queens or Vancouver, but if you can get the same education close to home, which you can, that's a huge difference. Coming out of school, mm-hmm. student debt or not, is a huge difference. You know, when you want to start your life and you're talking about, okay, I start my life today. I'm a grown, you know, man, woman, or, or whatever you call yourself, and you want to get out there. It's a big difference between whether you have to pay someone eighty thousand dollars or whether you have an education and a few, a few grand in the bank. So you got to yeah. start thinking about these things holistically early, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad that we're getting to that topic because I don't, I, me personally, I don't believe in like selling miracles when it comes to certain things. I feel like yeah. if it could break it down it, you know, it makes it easier for people to see it. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I can probably um, give you, um, you know, in terms of when you talk about how the, the financial journey, I can probably walk you through maybe five things that people, people can, can pay attention to. Right. So again, I came here, um, and, you know, built, built from scratch essentially. And, and growing up, I saw a lot of the effects of debt, saw the effects of bankruptcy. I was f- unfortunate and fortunate enough to work at a collections agency. So I was calling people for overdue bills. Um, you know, I was the guy who was calling me, you know what I mean? Wow. <laughs> so it's like, it's my, I'm going to have to call my mom one of these days. I was doing us collections. So that never happened, but I oh, saw yeah. a lot of this stuff. Right. So I was exposed to it. Um, my mom was very honest with us growing up. We knew what was going on. So, you know, the way that I was able to, to break that cycle and get into financial stability for one, it was uh, no debt, you know, run from debt, avoid debt by any means necessary. 
Do not be taking credit card advances out to go buy bottles of the club. Do not, um, you know, or the casino or, or whether it's a date or whatever, spend the money you have. Use your credit card, sure, get points, but pay it off. Do not live your life off debt early on. Mm -hmm. Later in life, there's a lot of great things you can do with debt. You can borrow against debt. You know, a mortgage is necessary debt. Nobody's going to drop a million dollars in a house one day. You want a really nice car. That's probably <laughs> necessary debt. A student loan, again, can be necessary debt. But consumer debt, there's almost no excuse for it, right? If, if you have an emergency in your family, you got medical bills to pay, that's a different story. But if you're just running up your credit card because you want to go out drinking every weekend, you're not going to hit your financial goals. Yeah. So you're going to want to avoid debt as much as possible. And doing that means living within your means, right? So again, if you make $2,000 a month, do not spend more than $2,000 a month. In fact, try to spend more like 1500 so you can get you know, goals later. So run from debt, live within your means, because when you don't live within your means, what you're doing is borrowing from your future self because your future yeah. self has to pay that back, right? So Very if you're true. 25 years old today and you're saying, you know what, I want to just run this debt up and live my life, 30-year-old you is going to pay for that. But 30-year-old you is not the only one that's going to pay for that. 30-year-old you to 40-year-old you will probably be paying for that. So do yeah. not borrow from your future self, right? Live within your means. I would say get an education, whatever that means. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean going to like some Ivy League school, but whether it's college or a trade or something, get something to fall back on. Um, you know, I know a lot of people want to pursue creative talents, and I'm not saying don't do that, but those things don't always turn into fruitions, right? You want to have some sort of plan B, or if that's your plan B, maybe education your plan A, but get something a two-year diploma, a university, whatever the case is. And again, I'm not going to tell people where their dreams are, but I'd recommend getting education in something that leads to a job. I'm not knocking anyone that goes after philosophy and history and communications. Education is always important, but you know, if you want to talk about stability, try to get an education in something that you think leads to a job. One of the things that some people could do is look for the job that you might want, right? Go on LinkedIn, go on CareerBuilder, whatever, and look for a job that you think you might want. You want to be an architect, you want to be a salesperson or whatever, and say, okay, well, what are the requirements for this job? And then start working on that. If it says get sales experience, if it says get this diploma or this degree, start ticking off those boxes. So one day you're ready for that job. Income, income is obviously very important. If possible, multiple income streams. And that doesn't necessarily mean you know, working 10 jobs like, uh, like, you know, a fresh immigrant in the 60s, but it might be, you know, we live in a, an economy today where there's so many gigs available, right? You could do your day job and you could spend a couple hours doing like, you know, Uber or tutoring or something. So you want to make sure you always have an income. I know sometimes it's fun to, to chill out for the summer and sit around playing PlayStation and stuff like that. But unfortunately, that's not going to get you to your financial dreams. So always make sure you have, you're generating some sort of income. And aggressive savings, you know, we just talked about that. You want the house, you're going to have to put money aside for that. So aggressive savings, right? Make sure you have an income, live within your means, save your money. And if you've done that stuff, you're going to get to a point where you can start doing things with your money. Now you can start looking at investments. You can start looking at property. You can start looking at different types of things, but you've got to get to that point where you have that money to work with first. And that's really about living within your means, saving money, having an income, do not operate off debt and then you can start uh you can start making some moves basically okay okay um the next question i have was um house or condo that's a good one that's a good question Ooh. 
So a lot of a lot of times it's it's the answer is really what you can afford, right? And okay. I don't think I, I think if to, if you really had your house set on or your mindset on getting a house today, but you can only afford a condo, I don't think that should stop you. I think you should use that as kind of building blocks. And this also goes for a region. A lot of people that I meet with, they kind of always have the idea of living downtown, but we know what downtown prices are like. Um, or they have this idea of whatever house their parents lived in, which now is the price of a mansion, right? Regular regular detached houses in Scarborough Pickering now are for over a million, right? Million dollars used to be, oh my God, you, like you have a butler if you have a million dollar mansion, right? But it's not like that anymore. So what I like to tell people is, is really you need to use stepping stones to get to your dream house. So for example, if you want to live in the downtown core, you want a house in the downtown core and you can't afford it right now. I wouldn't say wait until you can afford that house. The way to do that is go buy a, a house in Oshawa. Live in Oshawa for a couple of years, if you can, if you work from home, all things considered. Um, buy that house for $400,000. And then in a year or two, that house will be worth $600,000. Then maybe you sell that house, move into Ajax or Pickering or Scarborough, right? The closer you get to Toronto, generally speaking, is going to be more expensive. Um, the average Canadian uh, breaks their mortgage every 3.5 years or moves every 3.5 years. So that's really what's happening. No one starts with their dream home. They get their foot in the door. You appreciate with the market and then you move closer and closer to your goals. So not only is your savings increasing, your, your income should be going up as you get older as well, but also your house is now in itself making money. I'll, I'll probably present another side to that because as far as, you know, when you talk about house or condo, it, it depends on, on why, right? So there's an investment aspect and there's a lifestyle aspect. If it's about lifestyle, the answer is whatever you want, right? Like if you, it's not, the decision is not just house or condo because there's lots of ways you can invest your money, right? Paying rent, um, a lot of people say your rent is wasted, but you know, if you're setting that money aside, paying rent, because obviously rent in general is gonna be cheaper than a house or condo. So you can do other investments. I would mm -hmm. recommend people, uh, if, if home ownership is your dream and you have some big dream home, I think that the steps that Jerome are talking about will definitely help you get there. Um, there's probably other ways to get there too, but I really, you know, trying to balance financial health with happiness, I would really recommend people live for their lifestyle. If you're the type of person who really enjoys eating out, you really enjoy visiting friends, you really enjoy travel, or maybe just not that concerned with home, you'd rather have a fancy car, then maybe renting for your lifestyle is, is good for you, but you still go on to make sure you save your money, right? If, if you got $0 in the bank at your end of the day and you're renting, it's not a good scene. If you're owning a home and you have $0 in the bank in the day, it's not great, but at least you're building equity. So regardless, you need something that you invest in your future in. So when people look at home ownership, condo ownership, or renting, there's investments to be done, but I think you really got to think about your lifestyle, what's going to make you happy. Because if you're completely you know, mortgage broke at the end of the month, you may not necessarily be happy unless, again, that's working towards your dreams, like getting your, getting your dream home. Because I've seen friends do it too. They move into a house for a couple of years. They, um, it goes up. They move somewhere else. It goes up. They upsize or downsize, take advantage of the market. Not everybody likes moving every two years, but it is a way to, to get to where you want to go. Um, but I would, I would recommend think about the life that you want to live and is a condo lifestyle part of that? Because it's very different, right? You've got neighbors above you, below you, on the left, on the right. You've got a lot less space, um, but you're going to be probably somewhere that's a little more happening. Home ownership, a lot more space, you know, great investment. You've got real land, but now you got to take care of a house, right? You got to mow lawn, you got to shovel driveways, you got to fix things around the place. So, you know, think about, um, think about the life that you want to live and work towards that life.
Now, in the, the chat, uh, Bernadette has a question. Could I qualify for a mortgage if my income is low, say, 50000 per year, but you have to say, oh, but put 75000 down as a payment? I'm not sure if that was clear, but... Oh, uh, so I'm, I'm assuming she means seventy five as the down payment, yeah? Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And, and, and to be honest with you, like... Uh, you can, if you wanted a rule of thumb for income versus purchasing power, you can usually get qualified for about five times your salary. So a lot of people that, I mean, if, they're, if you're new to this, that's kind of shocking to them because 50,000 is pretty good money. Um, but if you come to me and we look through all your documents, you're only going to be pre-qualified for 250,000, give or take, right? That's the rule of thumb. And in Toronto, that's not the easiest uh, to find something for 250 and under. The 75K down payment is very helpful. So if we add that on top of the 250, you're in the low 300s and still not sure if that will quite get you to your goal, um, but it's an amazing starting place. If you are, if that's you, if you're using yourself as an example, I would I would still see if there was anyone, perhaps brother, sister, family member who's willing to co-sign. But something else that I like to talk about, and a lot of people, I guess they don't really think it's possible, especially um, of our younger adult age group is, is, is joint ventures, right? Mm. Because... It's, it's just really something that people don't really think about because you kind of think, do I, this is the largest purchase I'm going to make in my life. I don't trust that many people with a $500,000 purchase. However, if you are, you, sorry, I, I didn't get her name. Uh, Bernadette. Bernadette. So, yeah. so if Bernadette makes $50,000 a year and has 75,000 uh, down payment, she can't find anything for 325 or under, but she has a friend, cousin, brother, sister, who also makes 50,000 and has 75,000 down payment. Now you have 100,000 and 150,000 down payment. Now you're in 500,000 and 600,000. So maybe you're not ready to move right away, but now you have enough on paper for me to qualify you to get an investment property. So maybe that's something you should consider, right? Um, a lot of people, like I said, they say, I don't trust anyone else to be uh, with me in a venture like that. And, and to that, I, I'd really like to get across to people that we have real estate lawyers for a reason and they do a very good job breaking down contracts and saying exactly who owes what. So even in an example where maybe I put 70% of the down payment, you put 30%, we're actually going to break the, the uh, property up into shares where you owe seven, own 70%, you own 30%. Everything you need to know is going to be in that contract. If you need to sell, if you needed to buy that person out. So talking to someone like myself, kind of strategizing, seeing if a joint venture is for you, I think is uh, a great opportunity if you can't find anything within your budget. Okay. Um, I had a question, like just a off the fly question when it right. comes to like houses and condos like there's certain fees that um i would say that people don't really i can't say they're hidden but there's mm -hmm. fees that people don't really realize or notice that they have to pay for like certain condos you have to pay for the parking certain things like for housing some some you have to pay for heat certain different things so like what are things that you could say that like people should be aware of when it comes to certain, like for houses and condos of, yeah. I, I guess the, the, the biggest the biggest fee that people don't really think about is just the maintenance fee, the condo fees, right? And that a lot of people think is is kind of wasted money because it's 400, mm -hmm. 500, $600 a month. So it's kind of like you're paying a little what? bit of rent and you don't really see it. 400, Sorry? 500, 400, 500 a month for maintenance? Yeah, and that's, that's very common. Very yep. common, wow. yeah. Yep. Um, so like, for example, if you had a $500,000 condo downtown, um, you put 20% down, we break down your mortgage payment, you could be at maybe 18, 1900 a month principal and interest, but then you have to put another 500 
So your monthly is really 2,400. What? Right? Wow. It's just not crazy if mm. if we're looking at what rental rent prices were prior to the pandemic, which might have been 22, 2300 for that 20. same place, right? Yeah. At least now you're kind of paying into your own property, but definitely something to consider is the maintenance fees. The argument is if you were to buy a condo and pay $400, $400 a month for the maintenance fees, it's the same as if you were to buy a house and have to replace the roof, landscape, mow the mm. lawn, right? They're saying you don't have to do any of these things because we're taking care of it. We're going to take care of the hallway. We're going to take care of the lobby. If you have amenities, if you have a pool, we're going to maintain that for you. And that's what you're paying for. So it's give mm. or take. And you kind of got to look at it that way. Okay. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, fees for people at different, I guess, levels of, of lifestyle they're moving out, you know, it's just like when you move out for the first time and, you know, you're looking at renting somewhere, right? You might want to look at somewhere that has utilities included or internet included and things like that because your parents mm-hmm. took care of that. So you don't know how much that stuff costs, right? <laughs> it doesn't cost you that much and you're better off finding somewhere to pay for it yourself. You're going to have to pay for yourself eventually than you are um, finding it all in, pl- in price, right? If you don't go nuts, you can control your hydro, right? So you can control your hydro, control your heat. Water is relatively cheap in general and internet, mm-hmm. you can find your own deals. So I would say, you know, look for a place with low rent and before you decide to get an all-in price, because that stuff they're throwing in doesn't cost them that much. They're probably marking it up, right? So if, Great they, point. if their rent is 1200 and they're saying 1400 all in, internet and, and, and water and electricity is probably not going to cost you an extra 200 bucks. So, you know, take, take the ownership and go and look at prices um, for people. There's companies like Tech Savvy, Ebox. If you live in the downtown core, there's a company called uh, Beamfield. Very good. Fast, reliable internet services. So don't be afraid. Don't always look for those all-in-one prices. Now, when you talk about the home ownership, yeah, so you buy a house. Um, If you're buying a a new house, things that people need to prepare for is that new house is not going to be perfect when you move into it. There's a lot of stuff that happens in those first couple of years that are going to make you kind of uncomfortable. Houses need to settle. They need to sink. You know, depending on when you move into that development, maybe roads are done. They're not done. Maybe the driveway's done. It's not done. You're going to hear boards, cracks, creaking and popping. And certain things that are kind of covered in your original move-in warranty won't be a cost for you, but they will be an inconvenience. And condo ownership can be the same thing. When you first move into that condo for the first time, if it's a brand new condo, it may not be done. They're going to tell you when to move in. You're not going to say my move-in right. date is May 1st. They're going to say, no, your move-in date is May 10th because we have to move 400 people into this condo in the next little mm-hmm. while. So this is your move-in date. And those amenities that you've already started paying for may or may not be done. Your hallway may or may not be done. That patio, that pool, that um, you know gym may or may not be done. So when you buy new, just remember that when you walk in on day one, it may not necessarily be finished. I think with... Um, Hidden fees, uh, property tax is probably something a lot of people think about whether you own a home mm-hmm. or a condo, you will have to pay property tax. Owning a home, I think it's much more tangible to think about, okay, if my stove breaks, I got to fix it. Driveway, lawn, roof, fridge, major appliances, furnace. There's a lot of stuff you know that you may have to fix. When you own a condo, the maintenance fees will cover most of the majors. Insurance, right? If you, if you rent or own, a lot of people are looking at homeowner's insurance, um, sometimes you might need to get a mortgage insurance, depending on your down payment. So there, there are quite a bit of extra things that pop up that you might want to just make sure you do some research on to make sure that your income level is enough to sustain this. Because as, um, as Jerome was saying, a lot of what the bank looks at is your income, right? So they say, okay, if your income is not your lifestyle, right? Someone who makes $50,000 a year and someone makes $150,000 a year, 
It doesn't really tell you how much money they have in their bank account at the end of every month. Your income is not your lifestyle. The bank will base it on your income, right? So it means that they expect at that level of income, you can sustain this, but you're going to have to probably tighten things up when you first move out, not eat out as much. You know, you're probably going to have to do a little more around the house and things like that that you may not be comfortable with or you may not like doing, but it's stuff you're going to need to do to, to own a home. So property tax, the, the maintenance fees and maintenance fees that, that Jerome talked about is probably the big kicker for a condo. Um, I, I heavily disagree that they're worth their price, to be honest with you. You look at 600 bucks a month um, times 12, so you're at $7,200 a year. My fridge could break every single year. My stove could break. <laughs> I could replace my roof every three years. I could replace my driveway um, every five years. I could have the most premium gym membership in all of Canada, and I would probably not be spending on average $7,000 a month in maintenance fees. So I think, again, it's back to lifestyle. Toronto mm -hmm. is a mega city, right? A lot of us take it for granted that we live in one of the most amazing cities in the world, right? We live in the cities that they print those names on t-shirts. New York, Tokyo, LA, Paris, London, Toronto, Hong Kong, like that's where we live. So it's going to cost money, right? And if you want to live in Toronto, you're going to have to pay maintenance fees in a condo, period. You're not getting around it. If you want to live downtown, you're just going to have to swallow that. If you go on to live in Oshawa, Bowmanville, Brampton, Burlington, sure, you won't have to worry about it. But if you do want to live downtown, that number, that four to 600 plus is a number that you're going to have to get used to. And that's just your cost of living downtown. But you should, you should understand that, that does eat into your ROI, right? If you have a house and that house goes up from 500K to 700K, if you haven't had any major renovations or replacements, more of that money is, is a return on your investment. If your condo goes up from 500K to 700K and you've spent $8,000 a year on maintenance, that is not money that you're getting back. Same with property tax, same with utilities. So there is a bit left on the table as far as investments. That's why I do equities because money makes money and no one takes anything from me, but we can talk more about that later. Okay. This is a, um, just a quick sidebar for those that may not know what is considered downtown. Just, just a quick, is it, is it the blur line and below or is it King and below queen and below? I would say from a, from a lifestyle perspective or from a, from a real estate perspective. Okay. So from Let's a, go both. Let's go I've, both. I've lived in Toronto for a long time. I've lived just outside Toronto for a long time. I lived at Warden and um, I lived at Warden and like Vic Park almost for a few years. And if you ask Google, that's Toronto, but it's, it's just not the same. The lifestyle is completely different. So yeah. for people who consider themselves to live downtown, I would say they're talking about south of Bloor is a downtown life. And when I say that, I mean, it's probably a life where you won't need a vehicle. So it's probably a life where you probably won't get parking. Not a lot of gas stations, not a lot of car washes. Um, you're looking at lifestyle where you probably hopefully work to walk to work or take TTC. Um, you know, it's, it's a metropolitan lifestyle. But from a real estate perspective, almost anywhere with a 416 kind of phone number, it's probably going to cost you the same as, as downtown as prices and amenities, right? You want to buy a house in Etobicoke, you want to buy a house at Young and Finch, you want to buy a house at, you know, Downsview or a condo there. These are all going to be kind of same prices for, for, for real estate. I think Jerome, but you could probably add more light to that. Okay. No, I, I think that's the perfect answer. And like just me growing up in Scarborough was like south of Eglinton, you're downtown, but that's not, your, your <laughs> definition was much better. <laughs> yeah. yeah like if I talk to someone and they're in Mississauga, like, oh, you live downtown. But if I'm at work yeah. at, at King and John, I'm like, where do you live? And like, I'm behind God's back because I'm like two kilometers north yeah. of Bloor, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
Okay. Um, I think that's what I have for like mortgage questions, houses and condo. Okay. Wait, the, I, I got a question. I got a question. Okay. Oh, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, how does one determine their lifestyle? Because I noticed that word kept popping up. So how do you know whether or not your lifestyle can even, your current lifestyle can even get you ready and prepare you for the future you? So how do you know? That's a, that's a it's a good question. I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll just set you up, so because I know you have an answer for that. And I, I'd say it's really about budgeting, right? You need to know your budget, re- regardless of what your goal is. If it's a financial goal, especially real estate, you need to look at your budget. And you actually should be able to say, I spend this much a month on food. I spend this much a month on transportation. And then you, that's the only way you're able to even amend that budget to kind of get you towards your, your goals, right? So when you really sit down and make a budget, or a lot of people hate doing this, but look at your credit card statement, you get to see what type of lifestyle you're living. And maybe you eat out one too many times a week, or you go to the movies. It's not not right now, but in the old in the old world or whatever, you'll get to see exactly what your lifestyle is. Um, what do you think, Silva? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's my fault because I kept bringing that up. Um, so yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a left brain and a right brain response, right? The left brain we could sit down with you and take a look at how much you know money you make and we can tell you what your lifestyle should be. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the lifestyle you want. So on the, on the right brain side, if you're trying to say, you know, how can someone determine the lifestyle they want? That's, you know, that's soul searching, right? That's like, what, what do you want a life? What do you like? Right? Like, again, when we talk about where you live. Do you prefer to work out at home? Right? Do you, do you like social? Like, do you like to be out? Do you like to be around a lot of people? Or do big crowds really get to you, right? You're gonna have to think about these things and maybe shape it that way. So maybe living in a house in the suburbs where you can barbecue on your own patio and you don't have to hear nobody, it's fine for you. Or maybe you like that when you kind of are in the elevator, you see another person because we live these very secluded lifestyles now, right? Especially now with people working. Mm-hmm. Maybe you like common spaces in your condo. Maybe you hate them, right? So I can't, I can't really tell you that, right? Like some people... Um, you can have noisy neighbors anywhere, right? You could, you could have the worst neighbor in, you know, oh, yeah. in, in Kingston and you could have the worst neighbor on King West. So that part is a bit tricky, uh, but in terms of lifestyle you want, that kind of, you're gonna have to take a look at what you enjoy and what you like, right? What's important to you on a daily basis. And I would never talk about the things that you want to do once a month or once a year, right? If you want to see a basketball game once a season, you could live in Waterloo and come down to Toronto and watch a game once a season. That's not a big deal. But if you like to be able to catch every single game at a bar, then maybe you want to live, you know, more like a downtown lifestyle. You're going to have to kind of sit down and say, what do I really enjoy the life on a day to day? And I think that's what not what's my once a year dream, but on a day to day, if I wake up and this is my day and I go to sleep and this was my day, did I have a good day? Do I go to sleep happy? If you can kind of think about what that means to you, that might help you decide what kind of lifestyle you want, what's important to you. But you should probably understand that that changes over time, right? 20-year-old you, 30-year-old you, 40-year-old you is probably, for the most part, going to have different aspects about what you what you consider as the lifestyle that you enjoy. But um, it's, you know, think about the things you like, like how you like to eat, how you like to drink, how you like to see your friends, um, how you like to spend alone time and social time, because these are things you do every day. And if you think about those things, maybe you can try to figure out like, okay, this is the type of lifestyle I want to build for myself, which can be very different from the lifestyle you can afford. <laughs> Um, I just want to say thank you for bringing that up because as I look at my statements, I can say it changed from the time I was living with my parents to now that like I'm living by myself. 
I can say, you know, when I look at my my RBC, my financial tracker, whatever it is, it shows like all the fast food, you know, situations <laughs> I've been putting myself through. And then now yep. I'm seeing all these different grocery places now. I've been going to hey, man, that, that, all the time. That Popeyes is hurting more than your bank account. You got to be careful. Oh, if, you only know, you. <laughs> if you only know when it says, you know, oh, you know, add 50 cents to make it large sure why not but um (laughs) but um i think one of those things when it comes to like you know even just growing as a person is the mindset you should have right the mindset Mm -hmm. um your your whys and all that stuff so um the questions i have here is like one was like what mindset do you think people should have when it comes to saving so there's a lot of um, different realms of thought on that, right? And there's like magic numbers, okay? And before I, I get into that, I want to talk about kind of the, the influences that we kind of put into our mindset. And the reason why I want to get into that is because, you know, we're here talking about this stuff and I'm happy to share some of the knowledge that I've gained. A lot of it's been through trial and error. Um, again, if we do get into the stock talk, I got, I got my bleep eight a couple of times as anybody who's a market investor did. And probably nobody who invested in Canadian real estate did. So, um, uh, you know, <laughs> that. so I've, I've included knowledge, but one of the ways I've been able to commit knowledge is by controlling my inputs. And I want to, I don't want to get too, you know, philosophical, but there's a lot of noise in the world we live in more than ever. Right. Um, sometimes it's nice to take a walk, whether that's physically or just mentally and get yourself away from some of that noise. And I'm not knocking social media because I think, especially in the last year, it's been very important to keep us connected, right? To have these mediums, be able to see each other and talk to each other, it's very important. But, you know, if you live in a big city, uh, there's a lot of cars honking and dogs walking and, you know, people, and there's a lot of noise. And even if you sit in your home by yourself in 2021, there's equally, if not more noise, your phone's going off, your email's going off, you're watching TV, you're on TikTok and Snapchat and and YouTube and all this stuff, right? So try to control your inputs. And if I could give someone some advice, I would say to start, set one hour a week, right? One hour a week of time, um, whether it's a Tuesday night or a Saturday morning or a Sunday evening, put it in your calendar if you got to, right? You got got a smartphone. If you say, okay, Google, set a meeting every day at Tuesday at eight, it'll do it for you. It takes 10 seconds to send the meeting and try to create a little space for yourself where you're doing something a little bit productive right? And that doesn't mean, you know, it could mean building a puzzle or whatever, but even if it's just reading, um, I would say nonfiction for a little bit, because again, fiction is great. Um, I, you know, you read fiction, you watch fiction, TV, movies, music, etc. But set a little bit of time once a week to take a look at some stuff that's nonfiction. Read an article about, you know, maybe a biography about someone, maybe something about the, the economy, maybe just news, right? Because, you know, not to get into that whole discussion about misinformation and stuff like that, but just go through like actual news articles, you know, trusted sources, CNBC, and see what's going on in the world and try absorbing some information. And that's how you can start to get these these inputs that might help you make uh, decisions better. So based on your question about savings, um, there's a lot of golden rules of 5%, 10%, 20%. I would say that if to, if you do not save and you have a real hard time saving, start with 5% and say like, look, let me try to save 5% of my income every month and just start there. And then set, make an improvement plan until you hit your financial goals. Make your long-term plan to get to a place where you can save 25% of your income a month. I know that sounds nuts, 
But setting that goal gives you something to work towards. What that goal means is you're going to have to discipline the way you spend your money and you're going to have to make sure that you have income. Remember those things I talked about at the beginning? Income, run from debt, right? Discipline saving. So if you say one day I want to be able to be a place in my life where when I look at my paycheck, it's not gone before it hits my account. I get my paycheck and 75% of it covers you know, my life and 25% of it is just mine. That should be your goal. So start with 5% and be like, how can I save 5%? That means you make a hundred bucks, you put $5 away. That shouldn't be crazy, right? That, that, that's like making a sandwich instead of buying a burger. Like that's not nuts. You start with 5%. And then year over year, you try to go to 10, 15, 20, 25, right? So that's my advice for someone who has a single income with no dependents, right? You're taking care of your kid, your sick mom, stuff like that. Yeah, those are situations a bit different. But if you live by yourself and you do not have dependents and you cannot save money, you need to go look in the mirror because it's nobody's fault except you, all right? If you have even a dual income house, that number should be double. So if you're in a couple and you live together, whether you're married or you're just, you know, your boyfriend and girlfriend or girlfriend and girlfriend or whatever, if it's a dual income house, that number should double because your cost should be lower, right? If you live by yourself, you pay the light bill on your own. You pay the internet bill on your own. You pay the rent on your own. If you live with someone else, you're paying half of all that. So those numbers should be double. I wouldn't say get to 50%, but I would say start with 10 and work your way up to 25. So that's kind of my golden rule. Just flat that. Okay. That way. I don't know if, if Jerome, you heard, I know people have these numbers. I don't know if you have anything different on that. No, I think that's the perfect answer. And I like the way you broke it down as well. Okay. Um, okay. So what mindset should people have when it comes to, I would say spending. I would say spending. It's probably the same answer, but like. No, I think I, honestly, it, it will, it will, um, it will resonate on some of the points I made before, which I think is perfect because, you know, repetition is how people learn. Right. So when we talked about spending. We talked about living within your means. Right. Mm -hmm. um, some people, it's kind of like, I think healthy finance is similar to healthy eating, right? Not, to, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus, you know, but oh, oh, you, you go to the restaurant <laughs> and they say, and they say, do you want fries with your burger or do you want a salad? You don't have to go, hold on. Let me call my nutritionist and ask her which one is healthier. You know, which one's healthier. You know, I don't. you know, we all know. I don't. <laughs> we all know the fries are bad and the salad's good, right? But you do what you want, right? And I think with financial health, it's the same. You kind of know when you go out there and you're looking at buying clothes or spending money eating out or whatever, you know, you know, which financial decisions are good and which are bad. So some people can be conscious of those and make those on a daily basis. If you cannot, I would recommend you make a budget. So start with those numbers. And if you make, um, you know, $2,000 a month and you want to set aside that 10%, um, which is 200 bucks, then you say, look, every month I'm going to make sure that I save 200 bucks. If you get two paychecks, that means you take $100 from each paycheck and you put it you know, in a savings account. Savings accounts for most banks are free. They don't cost you anything. You can open up a savings account with your bank and start putting money in it. So start that way. So that way you don't touch that money. If you're not very good at being conscious about your spending, I think the best way to do it is a budget. One of the, um, one of the things that I used to do is I used to just sit down and take a look at all the money I spent. And I think that's like a, a fear tactic that, that gets you into shape. If you've never done it, I, I urge you take time and look at one month, any month, right? 
if you pick Christmas, you'll probably cry. If you pick December, but <laughs> or a more regular month, you know, whatever it's, we're, we're at the end of March, pick February. February was a short month. You probably didn't do much. So it was probably a good time. Just take a look at your bills. Take a look at your credit card. Take a look at your ATM withdrawals. Take a look at, you know, your debits or whatever the case is and take a look at all those. And first of all, see if you can itemize them. Remember where you spent that money. And then you'll see how, how you're spending. And you'll probably see that not everything that you spent was really essential. You'll probably see that some of those things didn't really bring you great joy. And you're probably going to see that there's something that you can cut back on. If you're going to Starbucks three times a day and buying like an $8 coffee, that's $24 a day, right? $24 a day times five days a week, you're at 120 something dollars. You know, at the end of the month, you're at $460 on coffee. Right. So if you take a, do that index one month and take a look at all the money you spent, I promise you, you'll find a way to save a couple hundred bucks without impacting your lifestyle. Mm. I'm, I'm definitely seeing it. Like as you're telling me, I'm seeing it because I could say since COVID, um, my cash withdrawals, because it shows like the breakdown, my cash withdrawals on my ATM. I haven't really took out any money from my ATM, hmm. but like, since you know COVID, now you could pay with cash. I see my little withdrawals coming in at least before. <laughs> well, my debit, I could have seen where I was spending, yeah. But now, like with my withdrawals, I'm having cash like go and I'm not remembering what I spent it on, all that stuff. But yeah, that yeah, I think you had a good tip for people too. You said you bank with RBC and they give you like a monthly spend report, right? Yeah, they have a like my personal track, my finance tracker so yeah. it tells you the stores and they break it down from like withdrawals food maintenance right. based so off much, the situation how much does that pie chart cost you it's free right Ooh, it's free it's exactly. free there you go so rbc <laughs> will tell you how much money you waste <laughs> I, I, I know it's not a plug but hey you know if they well, want to any bank i got a plug yeah. i got a plug oh, aside up? from rbc mint the app mint also does that exact same I've heard thing of that. too and it also itemizes as well your finances yeah yeah lots, oh. lots of tools out there for people interested right just like there's apps to uh learn the new dance challenge there's some apps that you can track your nutrition or food or spending too mm -hmm. okay 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 um another one i had was um what mindset people should have when it comes to investing um in my wheelhouse there. So first you have to make a plan to get to a point where you can be an investor, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and the things I've talked about are part of that plan. For one, you know, live within your means, aggressive savings, make sure you have income, put money aside. So you've done that for, you know, a bit and now you have money to invest. Now you need to start thinking about, whoa, where am I going to invest my money from? There's a lot of content that you can decide if you want to absorb, right? There's um, a Netflix documentary called Explained. Again, it's, it's nonfiction. It's fun. It's light. Um, there's an episode called uh, Billionaires where they show you how people made their wealth. And uh, zero people on that list, believe it or not, uh, made it in cryptocurrency. They uh, <laughs> 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 building, building businesses. But not everyone <laughs> So... You know, when you focus your content, um, I try to spend about an hour a day looking at um, yahoofinance.com. And I know it's, it sounds really boring, but honestly, like it, I put it on the background while I'm working and instead of music or instead of, you know, family guy, which I also love, I'm not as boring as I might sound during this, uh, during this podcast. I used to do stand-up comedy. So believe there's, there's oh, a part of me that oh. 
a part of me that have more fun with it. Um, but yeah, I'll put that on the background and it's very digestible. And I'm happy to plug Yahoo Finance because the way they talk about finances is for everyday people. They're not going to sit up there and talk about hedge funds and GICs and stuff like that. They're just going to, they'll interview the CEO of Lululemon and be like, hey, like, how were your sales last year and why? And they'll just, they'll, they'll break it down for you. So you can absorb that, that content, um, you know, whether it's through documentaries, I would recommend you stay away from YouTube. Do not absorb content yeah. off YouTube. I'm not talking about this. Opinion pieces, uh, fine. Um, but just, I, I would not look at investing tips and finance tips or religious tips or vaccine tips. Or <laughs> I, I'd really try to make sure you're getting information direct from sources, right? So a lot of stuff on Facebook, a lot of stuff on Instagram, a lot of stuff on YouTube make sure you're checking these sources. So when you look at news companies and stuff like that, they're usually very direct sources. Not saying everything they say is 100% true, but try to at least get direct to the source. And you'll help build up your knowledge of economics and things like that. Like I have a good understanding of these things, but I didn't go to you know a big university or anything. It just, I just took an interest in it and I read about it and absorbed that information I learned over time. So now you wanna talk about investments. The f- Let's try to talk, I guess, first about easy ones that a lot of people can do, um, especially if you have kind of like um, a reasonably stable job, okay? So Mm -hmm. if you get a a government job, um, you have pension. If you work for, you know, most companies, they give you health benefits. And a lot of people know that, right? You get a decent job, they give you health benefits. You get a massage, you can get your teeth fixed, get some glasses, um, you know, you don't pay for prescription drugs. Most of these jobs will also have pension plans and RSP contribution plans. There is no investment in the world that I know of that guarantees a 100% return aside from your employer contribution plan. If oh. you work for a company that has an employee contribution plan, that means that when you put in 3% of your salary, they put in 3%. There is no investment in the world that I can give you that will give you a 100% return instantly. You put in $3, they give you $3. You put in 300, they give you 300. It's usually based on a percentage of your salary and you have to take it. You have to, it's, it's, you're losing money if you don't, right? If uh. you don't take that employer matched contribution plan, you're telling your employer, don't give me $50, give me 25. That is exactly what you're telling your employer. So if your employer has uh, an employee contribution plan, you take it and you max it out, whatever it is, because there's no investment that will return like that. Um, pension plans, when you have other jobs, like, you know, you work for TTC or the government LCDO, they have pension plans. Those are great financial tools as well. And the reason why I'm talking about these is because there's a lot of ways to make fast money and risky money, but we live in Canada. We're very lucky that we have a lot of structured jobs and and economic opportunities other places in the world just don't have. Right. When we talked about what happened here in COVID, you know, you know, a lot of us here have family abroad. Um, you know, I have contacts abroad too. You know, what do you think happened in, in Thailand? And what do you think happened in, you know, Algeria? You think their government was writing them stimulus checks? They were like, no, you're, it's your fault. You're on your you, own. You know, you work parking cars, that's your problem. You work as a food vendor, that's your problem. You work at a nightclub, that's your problem. But we work in a, we lucky, lucky, really lucky to live in a country that takes care of us this way. So lots of great job opportunities that provide long-term stability. Again, the pension plans are great from uh, most government jobs. A lot of other jobs have pension plans too. 
Union jobs can be a lot of hard work, but they will provide long-term stability. And I'm telling you, they will help you get to these financial goals. If you work a union shop and you have a dual income house, um, whether it's you and your partner, and honestly, again, it's 2021. If you decide that marriage is not for you, but you have goals that require a dual income house and you have somebody in your life that has a similar mindset to you, maybe you would decide to get together and decide that, you know, we're going to live like this. I don't want to get married. You don't want to get married. Let's Let's like do financial dreams together. We get in a dual income household and afford a house and things like that. So habitat. Yeah, exactly. So some of these simple jobs that, you know, a lot of people kind of shake their head at, uh, you know, again, something like I got a lot of friends who work for the TTC and they've got, they, they're realizing, you know, financial health that they never dreamed of in, in their teens. And again, these aren't jobs that require you to go to university for eight years and stuff like that. So there's a lot of opportunities there. The pension plans that these companies give are great. Um, the employer matching contributions, great. I have to take some time to talk about a TFSA. Um, I feel like I'm a commercial that I've watched even saying that, but again, we live in Canada. I don't know a lot of um, Western countries that are kind of capitalists that offer a tool like this. If I'm talking TFSA, I've got to talk RSP and explain the difference. An RSP is a retirement plan. An RSP is you telling the government, I care about my future, I want to save for it. So it's the government saying, fine, let me make that a little bit easier for you. If you made 50 grand in a year, the government's going to tax you on 50 grand. If you take five grand and put it in the RRSP, the government will uh, tax you on 45 grand. So you'll pay less taxes. Now that's great, but they're going to get their money later. Don't worry. All right. So they're going to get their money later. If you retire and you draw that money out, they will tax it. Oh, but, yeah. But today during your earning years, because ideally, you're probably going to make more money while you're working than while you're not working. That makes sense, right? If I'm 67, 77 years old and I'm not working, my income is probably going to be lower than my 50s when I am working. So mm -hmm. I take the money out now. I put it in RSP. It sits there and I draw from it later. Lowers my tax today. So I pay less taxes today and I'm saving for my future. That's how an RSP works. The next logical question is how much money do I put into an RSP? That's a little more complicated. If you sit down with maybe a financial planner, they can help you because it depends on everything else. I'm self-employed, no pension plan, no nothing. So I have to save kind of aggressively for an RSP. If you have a pension plan and you have one of those um, employer matching plans, you might not have to save in as aggressively for an RSP. But if you open an RSP, they're gonna give you those same type of reports that you talked about with your bank, where they're actually gonna tell you, hey, if you wanna retire with this much money, um, then you're going to need to save this much, but they're going to give you kind of an interest rate breakdown and stuff like that. We talked in the segment earlier about how a million dollars today doesn't really buy your dream home anymore. A million dollars is not going to buy you much in 30 years. So, yeah. so when you talk about your RSP, I know these numbers are intimidating, they're jaunting, but putting money aside and watching it grow, you're going to want to probably have like a million dollars or something like that when you retire, but through a combination of things, right? If you own a house, it might be worth a million dollars. You got the RSP that might be worth something. You got Canadian pension, you got your own investments. So don't worry about the number, just make sure you're saving something for your future because that saving for your future could be the RSP, it could be retirement, it could be a rainy day, right? Maybe today you, you know, you're bachelor for life, but maybe you fall in love and now you have a kid and that kid's gotta go to university. It's hard to plan for the future, but you wanna be prepared. So that's the RSP, take money out of your income today, uh, remove yourself from taxes, save it for the future. TFSA is in one way similar, but in another way, the opposite. So the RSP says, we're going to 
remove your taxation now, but we're going to tax you later. TFSA, the government says, put whatever you want in here and we're never going to tax it. That's a very, very powerful tool for investing because most investments, you are going to be taxed as income, right? If you open up, you know, like a low, low interest type savings account or something like a GIC, which they give you like 2% tax or 2% interest, they're going to tax that as income. So even if you put like, you know, you put your little money in this little, little savings account and you made $200 at the end of the year, the government's going to say, yeah, give me my piece. It, it doesn't matter. They're going to say, give me my piece. When you put your money in a TFSA, they don't get a piece. So that's why the TFSA is a very powerful savings tool for you. But the TFSA comes out of the money you've already been taxed on. So mm. that's the difference in the RSP. You make 50 grand, you take five grand out, put it in the RSP, you're not taxed on it. You make 50 grand, government taxes you, whatever's left is yours. Now you put that in the TFSA, whatever you make is yours. The government will never touch that income. And that's why it's extremely powerful. Pretty much anywhere else you make money in Canada, the government will take a piece. When you make money in a TFSA, the government will not take a piece. And you can make a TFSA for anything. Equities, mutual funds, GICs, investments, ETFs, anything you want, basically, you can make a TFSA for. The TFSA has been around for, I think, 10 or 12 years. We're at a point now where I think you can have up to $65,000 in TFSAs. So if you're at a point now where you've never started saving yet, you have this, this bucket, this blanket, this safe haven called a TFSA that you can put up to $50,000 of your money in and the government will never be able to take any of the income you generate off that money. So it's very powerful. So the first, any type of savings or investment you look at, make it a TFSA. Later in life, if you're fortunate enough to max that out, sure, look at other things. But the first place you should be putting any of your savings and your investments in is a TFSA because the government will not take any of the profits that you make Everywhere else you make money, they will take profits. Okay. Okay. Um, I think I think TFSA. I'm you know I'm clearly very passionate about it, and I think they're very powerful. So if you have any questions, please ask me about what what they do. But that's basically it. You put the money there, and the government will not take any of the profit that you make on that investment. Okay. Um, I heard about TFSAs. I did not know about TFSA. I heard about it, but I didn't know much about it as when it when it came out and all that stuff i've heard rsps i didn't know like the full breakdown on it so it's good to hear but like my question like how important is it when it comes how important is education when it comes to like financial stability because you know some things i've heard i remember hearing like you know when i was a parent what no i'm not a parent when oh, my parents were <laughs> time out time out when my parents used to tell me you know save a $20 a week, save this a week, save that a week. And then you're hearing about different investments. And then I don't know, like your guys like school background or whatever, but you guys probably had to go to school in order to know about like real estate or learn about like TFSAs and stuff. But, you know, sometimes when it comes to seeing these things, not everybody wants to go to school to like learn these things that's going to actually help. Right. So like, how important you would say is like, is like education in regards to like financial stability? So there's two sides to that. Um, the, the short answer is very right. Um, but it's not, it, it's not a, a black and white thing. So when you talk about education, right. 
I will tell, you know, I'll, I'll be blunt. I, I went to high school and after high school, I couldn't afford to go to university. Um, I worked really hard in high school to keep my grades up. I wasn't out hanging out and, and, and chilling. A lot of my friends were, were doing other things that um, I didn't feel like were, were productive situations for me to be in. Um, so I worked, I worked in high school and um, I plan on going to university, but uh, due to financial reasons, I, I wasn't able to. And it wasn't just about um, affording university. I could have taken out a loan and stuff, but it was just like that, taking that on wouldn't have given me enough um, freedom and flexibility. I needed to take care of other things in my life at the time. So I wasn't going to university, but colleges was cheaper. So I went to college and I basically just looked at a local college. And honestly, like I looked at like the closest college. I live in Pickering. The closest college was Durham. And this is why I stress, like, you know, think about your education holistically and understand that uh, I hate to break it to some people, but the school they go to is not going to matter that much. If you're the top three people in your class at Queens, sure, probably going to matter. Maybe you meet somebody at Queens that has a good network for you. They give you an alumni and it could be anywhere else. But at the end of the day, you need uneducation. You don't need the education. I don't, I, don't, I don't think there's a point in spending tons and tons and tons more money to go to particular schools um, when all you need is uneducation. And a lot of places in Canada give you a lot of education. So, you know, make sure you get one. It's very important. Um, it, I learned nothing I'm telling you today in school. There's absolutely nothing I've said on this, this, this chat that I've learned in school. I went so, to yeah. what they call business administration, um, operations management. It, it was a cool course. I learned about production techniques, quality. I learned about supply chain. I definitely use it in my work uh, because I went to college. It was very hands-on learning, but nothing that I, that I tell you today, I learned in school. And the reason why I'm telling you that is because I talked to you about your inputs, right? The same hour that somebody spends on TikTok every day, they could spend, maybe spend it on TikTok six days a week and one day spend that hour trying to like, you know, learn something that's going to help them, whether it's a new language or um, reading articles or reading biographies of people that you feel have been successful. And it doesn't mean you can mimic all their stories. And I'll be blunt. I would caution, um, I would caution people of color to be politically correct, to read um, these success stories of white males and think that that's a path that we can walk. I never tell people to take a look at Steve Jobs as an example. I never tell people to take a look at Ted Rogers as an example, because that's not really a path for us today. It might be later, um, but it's not a path today. Uh, there's the guy from Shark Tank from FUBU, you know, who hustled really hard. Like those are probably similar paths that we can go to. And I don't mean to make a, a black clothing line. <laughs> I just mean that some of the, unfortunately, we're not yet in a world where all things are created equal. So opportunities are not necessarily equal, but I think that everybody should get some form of education. There are things that you get from an education um, that are more powerful than the education that you get, the discipline, uh, the network, the environment, the, the lifestyle, the, the routine, the rigor. These are all things you need to know. When I went to college, there were people that hated doing presentations, hated it, hated getting in front of the class and hated having to talk about a topic and you know, having to present and speak and rehearse. But guess what? That prepares you for the workforce, prepares you for your job interviews. It could prepare you for your first date with some girl that you met online. So there's a lot of stuff that you get out of getting a formal education that you may not necessarily um, really resonate with you today. Public speaking, you know, for example, forcing you through those presentations helps build your public speaking skills. So uh, I'm not saying you gotta go to an Ivy League school and end up with 80 grand worth of debt, but educate yourself in something 
either something you enjoy that you have an interest in or something that you think is job ready, right? If you, if you want to learn a trade or something, do it. So I think education is extremely important in terms of breaking the poverty cycle and in terms of um, getting ahead in life. But I do not think that a lack of education is an excuse not to be able to, to get somewhere because it's 2021 and we live in the information age. You can learn a lot of things on your own. Uh, there's a term called auto, auto dictact or auto detect, and it's basically a self-taught learner. And we live in a day and age where it's funny because almost any question you have, you can probably find a 10-year-old to explain it to you. If you're yeah. like, how does blockchain work? You're going to find some 10-year-old in Texas be like, let me explain how blockchain works to you. So if that guy can learn it, <laughs> I think, you know, we can all absorb things and, and, and get from it. So education is important, but multiple sources, right? control your inputs get a formal education but if you don't have that opportunity there's a lot of ways there's um i will plug edx edx.org edx.org free online courses from some of the greatest schools in the world mit oh, wow. harvard online courses that you can learn from uh, i'm not sure about like what kind of diploma you get but you want to learn about 16th century japan you want to learn about calculus-based economics edx.org and you can get free education from some of the greatest schools on earth okay um for jerome i would say um for the um your award-winning mortgage agent so i would say like what skills did you did you learn before like even getting into real estate that you think is like beneficial so I, I hate to echo what, what Silva said, but I just, I agree with so much of what he's saying. Nothing here I said today was learned in uh, university. Um, mm. I went to university in the States. I was on a track and field scholarship down South. I did uh, mass communication and PR for my undergrad. Um, I came back, wasn't sure if I wanted what, what I wanted to do with that. I ended up doing a graduate course at Seneca for human resources. So again, neither of these things um, is what I'm doing here today. And, and I really think regardless of what the craft is, the best way to learn anything is through mentorship. So the beginning of my path to financial freedom, I kind of told you the story where I had a friend who was doing really well, who did my mortgage, who let me realize these things. I end up working a corporate job um, in sales. Um, and I just kind of talked to him one day about it. And I said, you know what? I think I want to work for you. Do you want an assistant? And he said, yeah. So I, I, I started out as his assistant. Um, I think at this time he was still working for CIBC. Uh, and, and from there, I, I followed him around for a year. I learned what he did. I learned how he thought. I learned everything I, I could. I really just kind of became a sponge to what he did and how he made mortgages work. Um, and fast forward today, I'm, I'm at one of the most prestigious uh, mortgage teams in Canada, right? So it, it's exactly what Silva said. Education is so important and it really is about getting you to learn process and resourcefulness and memorization, public speaking, those type of things. But a lot of times it's not very job specific unless you're studying to be a doctor or right lawyer or something where it's very, very job specific. So kind of, I agree hundred percent with what he's saying, but if you are interested in learning something, reach out to someone who is an expert in their field and see if you can kind of grab some of their time and, and, they'll be able to share some shortcuts that maybe to help you things that they were unable to avoid when they did it. Okay. Um, were there any like books or articles or sources that you guys use that like helped you guys like through your past, through your journeys? 
it's a few good ones. Um, I like the five hour work week. That was a good one. The a lot of the books that I that I read were, were mortgage specific. Uh, mm. Be the better broker. There's a there's a, a beast in the mortgage field. His name's Dustin, um, and he writes a lot of mortgage specific brokers. And like honestly, I read his first three books. He has three parts of the book, and I felt like I just done like a, a year at university on mortgaging just reading his book. So definitely, if if there's something whether it's plumbing or whatever any any field you're in, find a book uh, specific to that industry. Someone who's done well and read their journey. I think that's very important. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that, that you had some good ones there because I'm one of my biggest weaknesses is I'm not an avid reader. I never have, mm. unfortunately. Um, I don't think I learned through um, uh, liter- literature very well. I don't remember the things I read. Um, I think it's important to say because we all have these little things that we work with, right? So I can learn um, very well through uh, doing and through verbal, but I, I do not retain information that I read very well. So uh, it was a long, difficult journey for me. So I haven't, I don't have a lot of great books to recommend. I've talked to people that I really admire and respect who recommend books for me. I was really lucky one day to sit down with someone named William Tatham. And he's kind of one of these like tech moguls in Canada. The only reason why I got in touch with him is because I ended up tutoring his kid. I, uh, I was tutoring uh, part-time. And again, this is why it's important to have a lot of activities on the go. You never know where you're going to get these opportunities from. So I was sitting there uh, tutoring this girl in math and we're in this, mansion uh you know in like york mills area and i was looking around the room and i noticed there was a lot of like ports in the room like hdmi port ethernet port this port that and i was like this is not a regular person's house mind this was 10 years ago okay so this wasn't like now where everyone's text it was 10 years ago and i'm seeing like hd ports all over house and i was like what uh, what do your parents do and she's like oh my dad's like a ceo or something i was like oh of like what she's like a tech, a tech company. I was like, what kind of tech Some software? And I just don't know this guy's name is um, William Tatham. And honestly, he's a type of dude that could be on Shark Tank. Uh, he, you know, he made a, made a billion dollar company, sold it, made another billion dollar company, just, just genius. And, and I sat down with him and I had an hour of his time and he did recommend a few uh, books to me. Uh, unfortunately, again, the, the kind of what I told you before about some of the socio um, political nuances that affect uh, different people from different lifestyles. I'll, I'll be blunt. I learned nothing um, from the books that he recommended uh, because they were about, they were about like, you know, white men that, that excelled in, in their craft, but they just didn't really, it didn't seem to be a repeatable formula to me. Mm-hmm. I worked at a, um, at one of my first jobs out of college, I worked under um, a man named Rudy Schulart, um, who kind of had a loose mentor relationship with me where he, you know, he, he gave me a lot of pressure and a lot of opportunity to prove myself. And I was able to learn a lot there. One of the things that he gave as fundamental reading uh, for everyone was the art of war. I really believe Sounds in that book. Uh, the art of war is great. If you can find an adopted version, the raw version is very difficult because you have to have an understanding of kind of Chinese history and culture at the time, you know, cause they're going to talk about, slaves and battles and soldiers but if you can find an adapted version many people have adapted this book to business or um, relationships or anything so the art of war i think is a great read if you can find an adapted version i really like a lot of eastern philosophy um you know like like sun tzu uh, confucianism buddhism and i know these aren't financial advice books but i think they help you learn how to think they help you question things and give you critical thinking 
Uh, Warren Buffett is uh, a very disciplined investor. And the reason why I recommend him is because he's done things, again, aside from the billions of dollars, he'll tell you how to invest safely, right? Mm-hmm. You can make a lot of radical moves and lose money in the market, but he'll tell you how to invest safely. There's another person named Ray Donovan who has a book called Principles. And Principles nice. Good book. Yeah, not just an investment book, but a lifestyle book. It tells you how to deal with problems and conflicts that happen in your life, how to fall off the horse and get back on. I think these are very relatable um, lessons that we can learn from. So The Art of War, try to find an adapted version. Very, very difficult to extract the lessons in the raw form. Um, Anything by Warren Buffett, articles, lessons, quotes, and things like that. And Principle uh, by Ray Donovan just kind of helps you learn how to roll with the punches. A little background about Ray Donovan. He's probably one of the most infamous, famous investors in the world right now. Uh, you know, let's say top 10 or something, but his claim to fame was a massive failure. Uh, in the early 80s, he said the market was going to drop. The market was going to crumble. The market was going to crash. And he, he, you know, he said this loud and proud to everyone and every, every person that he was managing money for. And then the next 30 years were the greatest economic boom in human history. So he couldn't have been more wrong. He was, he was the wrongest person on the planet about the forecast of the economy of the world. And mm-hmm. uh, he learned from that lesson and he humbled himself. And he, I think his company went bankrupt, to be honest with me. He had to start again. And, uh, and this book principle will really tell you how to kind of deal with conflicts and hurdles in your life, which I think we all need to learn from. Um, I definitely read the Art of War. No, sorry, auto book, audiobooks of the Art of War. And yeah, I'm going to have to find an adaptive version because when I read it the first time, I didn't really understand. Like, I understand war in general, but I didn't understand like sieges and. Yeah, it is tough. You know, talk about high ground and spies. But if you, right. you kind of Google Art of War for business, you'll probably find something that's adapted to talk about contract negotiation and things like that. Okay. Um, there's one flaw to the book just for anyone who decides to read it. And I shouldn't say it's a flaw, but a caveat to take note of is that it talks a lot about how to deal with your enemy. It does not talk about how to identify your enemy. So oh, I'm very, yeah. be very careful. Um, in the, in, it, can, it can create a very combative atmosphere, right? Remember, your, your partner in your home is not necessarily your enemy. Your boss is not necessarily your enemy. The person in the street is not necessarily your enemy. So, uh, and doing business with different cultures, these people are not your enemy either. A lot of times you have the same common goal, right? Business, we're all trying to buy low, sell high. So when you're reading the book, they will tell you how to deal with your enemy, which is great for uh, conflict management resolution and how to get the upper hand on your opponent. Uh, but, you know, don't treat any of everyone like your enemy. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Um, what the other questions I have I had was... Uh, how did how did your network influences affect your ability to build wealth? You want to go first, uh, Jerome? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I understand the question. Um, how did oh, my network really, really about network? Like, how important was your network to where you are today? The people you know or talk to? Right. Yeah, it's it's real. It's it, it is really important. Like, it, especially my story. It's actually someone that I knew that I I reached out or reached out to me to kind of even start me on this journey. But more than that, I'd say, especially if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to be self-employed, your name really means everything, right? So you want to be credible. Um, I had a lot of friends at, at a young age that uh, were very interested in a certain MLM, multi-level marketing company. 
I'm not going to mention which, which one, one it is because. Oh, no, uh, don't do that. Yeah, I'll leave that out of this because some people really believe in some of them still to this day and some, and some don't. So regardless of what your feelings are in that, I feel like a lot of them kind of ruined their branding in, in doing this company because, I mean, the key to these companies is you're usually selling a product and that's one way to make money. And the other way is to kind of network and get other people to sell this product. So at a young age, if you found something and it didn't really work for you, but you've told everyone uh, that, you know, do this, make money. And other people have really wasted time. Now that you're in the real estate and you want to sell them a house or you want to help them with their finances or show them a mortgage, they're not really trying to hear you. Right. So be very careful what you attach your name to, because at the end of the day, credibility and, and being that trustworthy person is everything. Yeah, I, um, I, I've. I haven't had a lot of help from um, my network, but I, I haven't had none. So in recent years, I think it's more, it's coming, it, it's coming to fruition more. So I will, mm-hmm. I can give some tips on it. I mean, it's obviously important for a lot of reasons. For one, um, you're going to be judged by the company you keep, right? The people that you associate with, they're going to influence your life, right? If you hang around with people that love baking, your belly is going to swell, like, you know, like it's, it's going to happen, right? So you gotta, and it's not about changing, you know, the people like loyalty is very important. So the people that you grew up with, the people you know are loyal to, they're always gonna be very important, right? They're always gonna be, give you great life advice and hopefully look out for your best interest, whether it's financial or relationships or, or whatever the case is. But as, t- as far as your financial stability grows, yeah, just like if the people around you like to bake, you're gonna eat cake. If the people like you, if the people around you like to make money, you're gonna eat cake. So it, it, it will matter, right? Because like-minded people and having that mindset will make a difference. Um, I was recently in the market um, looking at houses and I had a friend who gave me a couple of good recommendations, uh, recommended buying agent, things like that. And he recommended me um, a, a broker as well. But the broker that he recommended was someone who I'd come across with in the past that had kind of crossed me, like really rubbed me the wrong way and, uh, and said some things that I didn't really appreciate. So I was like, no, I'd rather write someone else my check, right? So in that situation, that's probably an opportunity lost for that person. And I'm sure they'll have others, but that's just one of those things. You can never burn a bridge because you never know what rivers are ahead, right? So mm. just try to be nice to people, honestly, like try to make a good impression and try to be nice to people and try to last that. And if someone crosses you, unfortunately, you, you do want to hammer back, right? You want to, you, you get emotional but that's not really going to benefit you. Right. So try to try to do a little wusai and, and bring in your little Buddhism and try to be good to people because you never know when those relationships are going to come in value. I've had a few people help me with a few tips, but you know, some of them, not, not a ton. It, it hasn't influenced me a great deal, but it can. Right. So again, we talk about getting an education. Um, I took a course after school. It was called Apex. Um, and it's like a supply chain type course. So, you know, I met like-minded people. There are people that worked in the pharmaceutical area, people that worked in manufacturing and tech. So your network is highly valuable. And, uh, and it's not about creating a space of winners. And if I hang out with people, we're going to win. All I'm saying is be nice to people and, um, and try to give more than you can receive, right? So some people take a network into thinking that, look, you know, how can I get ahead by this person or that person? That's not what it's about. Give as much as you can. Everyone's got something to offer. We all have different talents. Some people have nothing but an ear. And a good listener is probably the hardest thing to come by in this day and age. Easiest way to get someone to like you is just listen to them. 
ask them about themselves and listen to them. So, you know, your network is very important because it's going to, it's going to shape your mindset, right? Like if you, if you want to be an improv comedian, you're going to have to hang around with these improv comedians. You're going to have to do improv comedy with them. You're going to have to be doing shows three nights a week, right? If you want to be an improv comedian and you spend seven days a week with a bunch of roofers, it's not going to do well for your improv comedy career. So your network is very important. One of the really valuable lessons that I had in networking uh, a few years ago was about rate of pay. And I don't want to get too into it, but basically when you come from certain demographics, it's, it's difficult to understand how the world works outside your demographic. If you're from a minority population, you by definition are from a minority population. So you actually mathematically don't have the same understanding or influence as the majority of the world, of, of, of that population. In Canada and North America, if you say 70% of the people have this lifestyle, this mindset, and 30% don't, and you're part of the 30% that don't, you actually don't really know how that other half thinks and, and how they do. Um, in the last few years, I'm self-employed, and I was able to increase my rate of pay, not by bettering myself or getting any more education or doing anything different, but just by exposing myself to a network of people who I understood were charging way more for the same job that I was doing. And I wouldn't have known that had I not opened my scope of network. Oh. Okay. Um, I know this wasn't, this wasn't the question, but one thing I wanted to speak about, like that, that came to my mind when you're talking about like people and influencers and stuff is bad influence um i could say some people they you know there's this type of loyalty to have sometimes when it comes to people that don't help you get where you're going so like how did you guys like overcome that or you guys still have them close do you guys just know how to maneuver how did you guys maneuver around that uh yeah like for, for me it's really just knowing knowing what people are about right not not everyone's going to be interested in investments uh not everyone's going to be interested in real estate um so for me being an ex what i would call an expert on mortgages now i i want everyone to know especially in my network and my friends that the advice um is available to them if they need help i'm here to help them um, and I, like, like Silva was saying, that's very important for networking. If they have family or friends, they might refer you, but I don't want to push uh, my agenda down anyone's throat. Even if I think right. it's the best for them, I don't think it's, it's, it's beneficial for your, for friendships or networks to say, Hey man, you should be getting in the market. You should be doing this, this, and that. If people want the knowledge, they'll come. Right. So knowing that I know I have friends that if I want to talk real estate, that's the person that I'm going to call because they enjoy real estate. They're doing well in real estate. That's what I'm going to bounce ideas with. If I want to. I want to have a question on my fantasy basketball team. I'm going to call someone else, right? And have that conversation. So you really just have to know the people that you're, you're talking to. Yeah. And there's, um, there's a saying, I don't know who said, it's like, um, you know, when the tide rises, all the boats in the water rise, right? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, I really believe we all come up together. But at the same time, yeah, people have their own interest levels, right? Like, you know, if somebody's into, again, like, you know, I have friends that are into fantasy football. That's not a conversation that I have much to add to. Um, and you know, some things that I want to, I like sci-fi movies. They might not want to talk about that. So mm-hmm. in terms of your, your network and, and the people you grow up with, I think I know where you're getting at here because when I was in my late or early teens, um, there's people around me who had a lot of habits that, um, you know, I recognized were not going to get me too far. 
right? And, uh, you know, these are your boys, right? As a grown person, what do you do? Like make a whole new group of friends? Where? Like go join a volleyball team? Like it isn't so... You, your loyal network is very important. And that's the people that you're going to celebrate life with, right? When you have your first child or you buy your first house or, you know, whatever the case is, like, these are the people that you want to text and be like, you know, I'm so excited. Da, da, da. It's probably not going to be, um, you know, the person that you trade stock tips with or whatever the case is. So there's a balance to be applied. And I know what it's like to, I don't even want to say outgrow your circle, but to have to make decisions about, um, you know, who you want to be in your future, in your future self. And the only thing I could, I could say is you got to lead by example, right? It's not about putting anyone down um, for their lifestyle, the choices they make. If you have people in your life that you love and care for, you want to help them and you want to lead by example, right? So if they're going to go do this on a Friday night and you're going to go do that, you try to persuade them. You say, look, I'm not going to be like about that right now. I'm going to go do this. Why don't you come with me? And they're going to make their choice, right? So you try to lead by example. And if your life leads you in different directions, um, it is what it is. Sometimes you can lead different lifestyles, but still keep some of those people close. Sometimes you just grow apart in a way where it becomes too different. So I think um, long-term relationships are very important because again, they're scarce, right? If you're not going to build a 20 year relationship at age 40. I don't think, right. Like I really don't think that's going to happen. It's going to be the people you grew up with and they know you in a way and they saw you grow that it's, it's invaluable. But at the same time, you got to decide who you want to be and who your future self is going to be and who you want to be surrounded by to get there. So I think there's a balance to be applied. All I can say is try to bring your people with you as much as you can, um, you know, try to bring them into what you're trying to do. And if they don't want to, that's perfectly up to them, right? Everybody has their own definition of happiness. But try to bring those people along because those relationships are super important. Don't just leave them by the wayside. Don't just, you know, I don't know if people still talk about cutting people off on December 31st. If you still see everybody tweeting, I'm cutting this list of 10 people off, right? So that's a good way to live your life. Um, Try to bring people up with you as much as possible. But you have your own goals that you got to focus on. And some of those goals, they're not going to help you with either. So you're going to have to make that decision. Uh, Now in the chat, uh, Roger M uh, says, This is a stock related question. If you were to start your portfolio to retire in five to seven years, what industries or stocks would you recommend and what strategies would you use in these stock options, futures and or dividends? Okay. Um, I, so the first, the first and foremost question is how much money do you have to invest? Right. If you talk about retiring in five to seven years and you talk about making a retirement plan, a five-year retirement plan, I hope you have a lot of money to invest because again, I'm not, you're not going to, you can actually, you can actually probably double your money in six years, but doubling your money, if you have a hundred bucks is not going to be enough to retire. Um, it's very easy to double your money in equities in uh, the next, in, in about six years is very easy. What I would recommend for Roger is take a look at something called the um, S and P 500 index. And that will give him an idea of growth in the stock market. Look, just Google S and P 500 index take a look at five year, 10 year, 15, 25, and you'll take a look at how stocks have grown. Then take a look at whatever your favorite companies are, Roger, whatever they are. You like Apple, you like Tesla, you like Microsoft, you like Nike, you like Lululemon, whatever your favorite companies are, take a look at their stock history for the last five to 10 years. When you look at any stock, look for a ratio called um, sales to price. Sales to price tells you how overblown a stock is. If a stock sales to price ratio is one, two, three, four, it's okay. 
if it's like 10 or 20, it means that the stock is worth 10 or 20 times more money than that company is making in a given year. So it, it can be quite risky. Um, in terms of what you can invest in, there's a thing they do called risk tolerance. Anytime you sit down with a financial advisor, they'll do this thing called risk tolerance. We'll ask you a bunch of questions about what your gut is like. And that's not something else anyone can determine. You know, we talked about like, hey, what kind of lifestyle should you have? That's kind of a choice you have to make, right? What kind of lifestyle you can afford is a math choice. The lifestyle you want is your choice. The risk you should take, sure, math. But the risk you can take is really up to you. So I'll, I'll walk you through the types of investments and how they scale on a risk area, right? So the first thing you have is your savings account. You go with a savings account with a bank, you get like 1% interest. Zero risk, but basically zero return. If you know how inflation works, 1% year over year gives you nothing. It just means your money stayed the same, right? Mm -hmm. Because if a can of Coke cost a dollar and it costs now a dollar 10, you turning your dollar into a dollar 10 means you can afford the same can of Coke. So it doesn't really do much, but it's safe. Above that, you have something called the GIC, guaranteed interest something. Again, very safe, might give you a little bit more money, um, will not make you a millionaire in the next five to seven years, It'll probably give you a 2% return. So if you have some money set aside that you're really, really afraid to lose, but you don't want to invest it, you can do a GIC, you'll get maybe like one or 2% return, any bank will give you one. Now you move up in risk, you have something called a mutual fund. A mutual fund is a managed investment where they take a, a bunch of different equities, different investments, they mix them together for you. So they balance the risk. When you balance the risk, you balance the reward. So if mm. stocks are going like this, the mutual fund goes like this, if that makes any sense to you. So the highs aren't going to be as high, the lows aren't going to be as low. So you can expect kind of um, stable returns on a mutual fund. The thing about a mutual fund is there's something called a management expense fee. So the person that's managing your mutual fund or the company will take some money out of it. They'll take a couple percent out of it as for managing the fund. So it's low risk. You don't have to pay attention to it. You can put some money in a mutual fund. They will give you tons of charts about how much money they've returned and things like that. There's different risks. There's mutual funds that just invest in like the Canadian dollar. So as the Canadian dollar goes up, they go up. So again, one, two, 3% return. You could find a mutual fund that invests in like Japanese semiconductors, which could be riskier. So there's lots of different mutual funds. Anyone that you bank with, CIBC, um, RBC, even Simply Financial, T, anyone that you bank with will be able to find you mutual funds. So that's it for kind of your stable everyday in the bank investments. Now we're going to get into this is where the barrier for risk is drawn. So we've given you all your low risk options. Now we're talking about high risk options. If you want to retire in the next five to 10 years and you do not have a lot of money saved, you're probably going to have to look at high risk options. That means that you could lose all of this money. But it means that if it's not a lot of money, losing all of it is not a big deal. <laughs> if you have a lot of money, I would not recommend putting it in high risk stuff because you don't want to lose it. If you don't have a lot of money um, set aside right now, then putting it in high risk things might not be that bad of an idea if you can, you can stomach losing this money. AMC, GME, that whole fiasco that happened. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, that's basically sports betting. So I can, I can get into that after, but that, that's like betting on the Super Bowl, to be honest with you. Like if you, you, if you know football, I would highly recommend you bet on the Super Bowl before you put money into J, uh, GameStop or AMC. Yeah. 
Oh. <laughs> okay. Um. But the, no, so the investment we just talked about were um, mm-hmm. low, low risk, right? Yeah. Now mm-hmm. you need the high risk investments, which we talk about self-directed investments. When I talked about mutual funds, I said they take a little bit of percent out. You have something called an ETF. And an ETF is um, another kind of packaged investment where they'll take a bunch of companies and they'll invest in the companies for you. And that limits your risk as well. So, you know, everyone has that debate over PC versus Apple. Some people like Apple, some people like Windows. You can find a mutual fund that invests in both. So if Apple has a great year and Microsoft has a bad year, you're kind of balanced in between. Um, Whereas if you bet on the right one, if you bet on Apple or Microsoft, you would make the most money or lose the most money if you made the wrong bet. So an ETF balances your investment and they charge a small expense fee. Then you can directly invest in the equity. The equity means I'm buying a piece of one company. You can go buy Tesla, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, um, Canada Goose, TD Bank. Like you go buy a piece of a company. And that um, is a little bit higher risk than the ETF, but it will have better returns. There's no expense fee for that. Aside from commission, you've got tons of platforms for self-directed trading. Every single bank has their own platform. Uh, you know, the, the big ones like RBC, Scotia, TD, um, BMO, CIBC, HSBC, they all have their own. Then you have smaller platforms like Robinhood and Wealthsimple and things like that. But I'd recommend just going in with the, the person you bank with, right? You'll have live support and things like that. So whoever you bank with, they'll have a self-directed platform that you can buy ETFs or equities directly in a company that you have faith in. And when it comes to picking the right company, pick a solid company, pick an industry you understand. You know, if you're in, if you're into sports and you kind of understand where Under Armour sits versus Nike and Adidas, that might be the right play. If you're into um, tech, there could be a lot of options. If you're into retail, you can invest in different clothing companies, but pick a company in an industry that you understand um, and do some research and invest in. We could probably do a whole nother segment on how to pick the right stocks, but you know, just, just pick a company that you like. There's other stuff called options trading, which is high risk, very complicated, would not recommend it for an early trader. And then obviously you hear a lot of buzz about things like cryptocurrency, um, which again is, is basically sports betting. I, I wouldn't recommend that for an early trader. And the, the GameStop and AMC stuff, you know, I was closely following it. You can get into it for uh, interest level if you want. We can talk about it, but I'd probably get through your more useful questions before we talk about uh, casino style stock market betting. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, one of the questions I have, uh, uh, what was the question? Oh, right here. Um, the last question I had was, um, what, what are your views on borrowing to invest? Mm, mm. Trading on margin? There's, um, yeah, there's, a few ways, there's a few ways you can borrow to invest. Uh, trading on margin would not recommend for someone who's not very savvy. If, if, you know, if I assume the audience is early investors, uh, I, would, I would recommend a few things if you're trying in the stock market. So first, step one, go to whoever you bank with just to keep things simple. I mean, I myself bank, I think my, my investment portfolio is with Scotia iTrade. Don't recommend them over anyone else. They all have kind of similar platforms, similar pricing. Um, So whoever you bank with, to keep it simple, go with them and open a direct investing account. When you open that direct investing account, open it as a TFSA, because then the money you make will not be taxed. So go open a TFSA direct investing account with whoever you bank with. 
it's free. And then you put in the money that you want. A couple hundred dollars, a couple thousand dollars is up to you. Now you want to pick your first stock. Pick something you understand. If you invest in things you do not understand, you will have no idea when to buy and no idea when to sell. And the second one is the tricky one. When to buy is very simple. Buy whenever you want. Markets go up. It's like real estate. Any investment, the best time is yesterday and the worst time is tomorrow because everything's always going up. If you look at any economic charts, you'll see that 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, everything's always go up. We had a crash last year that lasted a month. If you sold at the bottom, you could have lost tens, thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions. If you waited like six weeks, you would have made tons of money because the market always goes up. The difference between people who win and lose in the market is not necessarily about smart investors. It's about the access to money. If you have $10,000 set aside and you put all that money in the market, then you have some emergency come up in your life and you need to draw that money, you might lose. You get married, you have a kid, you get in an accident, you might lose. If you have $20,000 and you put $10,000 in the market, then you still have money aside for your emergencies and you still have money for the markets, you're okay. Because as long as you wait long enough, the market will come back. It will have blips, but it'll go like this. So it'll go up and down while it goes up. So you just have to wait. You have to strong stomach the market, buy uh, investment companies. And if you pick any of your favorite companies and you look at their graphs, you will see this. So knowing when to buy is not that difficult. As long as you pick a long uh, standing company, knowing when to sell can be tricky. And if you invest in an industry you know nothing about, you'll have no idea when to sell because you'll be like, I don't know if double is good or triple is good or 10% is good because I don't really know anything about the industry. So invest in something you want. Um, the first thing you should look at is, do I think the economy is going to go up? The answer to that question is always yes, over time, right? Right now, the last year or so has been very unstable. It goes up and down, but eventually the economy will go up. Then you take a look at, will this industry go up? That answer could be yes or no. Um, would you have invested into like Polaroid in 1998 when cameras are going digital? Probably a bad idea, right? Um, I personally wouldn't invest in a company like Chevy today because electronic cars are becoming more and more powerful. I would probably invest in um, Amazon, for example, because it's e-commerce. So like, will this industry go up? If you think the answer to that is yes, probably invest. Now you got to pick a company. Will this company do better than its competitors? So you've picked, ah. you've picked an industry that will go up, right? So you talk about like laptops. Everybody's going to have a laptop. I want to invest in laptops. Is this industry going to go up? You say yes. Or smartphones or streaming services. That's a big one right now. Netflix, Disney, Fubu, et cetera. So if you find an industry that you believe will go up, now you got to pick the right horse, Okay. If you don't want to pick the right horse, look for the ETF. The ETF will invest in the entire industry. If you want to take more risk and put more money into one company, now decide who's the best player in this space. So if we take streaming as an example, you've got Disney, you've got Netflix, you've got Fubo, we've got, um, I think NBC has a platform now, Paramount's coming, there's tons of them. You have to kind of research them. I can't tell you who's going to win because I don't have a crystal ball. But this is where you start to decide, where am I going to place my bets? So you take a look at a company like Netflix. Take a look at who their CEO is and what, what they've done. Take a look at Disney and who has more stronghold in the game. and Start looking at their charts and things like that and how much money they have and what their plans are. And you can honestly just Google them. You can type in Disney 
Google News and see some articles about Disney. You can type in Netflix, Google News, see some articles about Netflix. So you've decided an industry that's going to grow. You've decided the company in the industry that you think is going to beat their competitors. So now the, you can invest, you can buy some stocks and set some targets for yourself on when you want to sell. If you want to buy Disney, for example, and again, these are just examples. This is not stock advice and I'm not telling them to buy Disney. I'm using Disney as an example because I think it's a household name that people understand, right? They make movies, they have a theme park, they have cruise ships. So you can sit down and think about what you think is going to happen to Disney. Are they going to be successful in movies with Marvel and cartoons and animation and Pixar? The, the answer is up to you. When their theme parks open up, are they going to be successful? When their cruise lines open up, are they going to be successful? When their streaming services open up, are they going to be successful? The answer is up to you. So you can weigh Disney against a company like Netflix, um, who's also been very successful in streaming. There's a company called FUBU. Uh, Fubo that specializes in sports streaming, and there's many other players. So you, you pick an industry, then take a look at the company, take a look at the, comp the competition and decide if you want to invest. And I know this sounds like a lot of work, but if you can spend two hours on a Thursday night watching a baseball game versus two hours researching a little bit about what you want to invest on, you know, it's up to you. One is entertainment, one is financial stability. I'm not going to tell you what's going to make you more happy, but if investing and financial stability is something you're serious about, put in the work, educate yourself and learn about these companies. Okay. Um, I think that's what I have for questions. Delpesh, Nerdzi, you guys got anything? Mm, let's see, let's see, let's see. Gotta think about it. <laughs> How far back would you look now, okay, say all the steps that you said. You've finally taken some time. You, you're spending those two hours. You know, you, you started talking about the, the PE ratios and you um, were talking about like different measurements to like gauge. Mm -hmm. How far back should you actually look at um, a stock's like record, I guess you could say? And even their earnings, do, do their earnings matter when you're looking at, their, at them, right? Okay. No, these, these are good questions. And now we're basically going to get into my, I've tried to keep, keep things very objective. And I'll, I'll be honest, we're going to get into kind of my uh, subjective opinion as an investor. Okay. So the things that I'm about to tell you, I would uh, recommend that anybody check them, check other people's opinions on them, ask other people in the market, read, you know, Warren Buffett and, and Ray Donovan, because the, the, we're now getting to my personal experience as an investor. Okay. Okay. So how far should you go back? Mm -hmm. Silva Gonzalez does not care what you did five years ago. He cares about what you've done lately. Okay. What have you done for me lately? I've heard what that saying. you done lately because in, I don't invest in the past. I invest in the future. All right. Right. I come from a, a background of supply chain management, forecasting and planning. I've had jobs where we, we predict sales in markets. That's what I've done in my business career, predict sales in markets. When I worked at BlackBerry, we forecasted highly volatile regions in the Caribbean and Latin America, like Venezuela and Jamaica and these things like that. So I have a background in how to try to predict the future. That's what you're doing with the stock market. And it's very tough, right? I'm not, it's, it's not necessarily easy money, but it can be a lot of great gains. If you take a look at a lot of the companies in the last five years, you will see that a lot of people have made a lot of money. You can pick any company you've heard of and look at their last five-year plan and um, it, you'll see that somebody made a lot of money, right? So I would say look at the last five years 
very closely, we have something in, in forecasting called a moving average. And what that means, or a weighted moving average. So you can take 20 or 30 years worth of history, but if you're taking 20, 30 years worth of history, pay more attention to the last five years. Pay more attention to the last two years. But you've got to kind of understand why those things happen. And this is why when you start investing, take a couple years with a little bit of money and just like start paying attention to things. See what happens when a news article drops. See what happens when there's a sales spike. See what happens when there's a PR release. And try to, you'll start to see how these things affect the stock market, how public opinion and how these things affect the stock market. Right now in America, Twitter, Google, and Facebook have been on trial for like the last two years about different things, um, you know, about social media platforms and influence on information. And these things have affected the stock market. You take a couple of years to, to learn about that. So in terms of how long should look back, if you're looking at a long-standing company like Air Canada, Microsoft, Apple, you can be pretty sure these companies are going to last, right? So just because they had a blip in the last year or two, you got to really look within yourself and say, what do I think is going to happen? Do you think someone's going to come and knock Amazon off the top anytime soon? Do you think someone's going to replace Facebook anytime soon? Microsoft, Apple, these aren't rhetorical questions. These are real things you need to ask yourself. Mm -hmm. Just because Amazon's a big company does not mean they cannot be replaced. Are they likely to be replaced? This is something you have to ask yourself. Everyone thinks that Facebook is too big to fail, but so was MySpace and Facebook. (laughs) Right. So like you got to really think about these things. Right. So look at the history. If look at as much history as available. If it's a, if, if it's a company that's been around for 30 years, look at that, but pay more attention to what's recent and pay even more attention to what you think their future is going to be. And what you think their future is going to be has to do with what industry they're in and who their competitors are. When Disney Plus first came out, I had no faith in them because I had a lot of faith in Netflix. I said, no one can go in. Oh. Netflix. They're too much of a giant. Disney you Plus. You the Marvel? Sorry. I'm sorry. I was Disney like, you the Marvel stuff? No, Marvel's great, but as a streaming service, I didn't think they were going to make it. Mm-hmm. Disney Plus has gotten more subscribers in less than a year than Netflix did in, I think, their first 10 years, right? Mm. So it's really, you, you've got to make you got to make these decisions and decide, is this an industry that's going to grow? And that's the important part, right? So, you know, I talked about three streaming services, Disney, Fubo, Netflix. If you pick an industry that's going to grow, it doesn't really matter which player you pick. It's a matter of mm. a 10% gain versus a 20% gain. If you pick the best, like when weed boomed, right? When the weed industry popped, you could have won on anyone if you sold at the right time. So remember, I said, it's not about knowing when to buy, it's about knowing when to sell. And if you invest in almost any weed stock at the right time, you would have made money. If you invest in almost any weed stock at the wrong time, you would have lost money. And it's been like that with electric vehicles and things like that. So when you wanna think about what to look at from the stock, look at the industry, look at the um, competitors, and historically pay a lot of attention to the last two or five years um, but if they're a long-standing company, uh, again, what happened 20 years ago is probably not that important, unless you think they're basically something that can't really fail. Like I can't see a company like Microsoft disappearing tomorrow. There's industry things where depending on what type of service you provide, you have to, this is where it gets a little complicated. You can start thinking about how repeatable is this business? If it's a business, that's very easy to copy. Um, then it might be displaced. 
but if they have a high amount of brand loyalty, they might not be displaced, right? Here in Canada, the barriers to entry to start an airline are great. They're massive. I do not think of a, a new airline is going to pop up in Canada and displace Air Canada. Lululemon makes yoga apparel. Almost anybody could probably pop up tomorrow and make the yoga apparel, but will they have the brand loyalty that Lululemon has? Probably not. But these are the things you have to think about when you think about, am I going to invest in this company? Is the industry going to grow? Is it going to beat its competitors? How easy is it for someone else to come in and kind of take this over? And if the, the answer to those are positive, then you're probably investing in a long-term company. But there's lots of companies that have been around for you know, 10, 20 years. Odds are, if a company's been around for at least 10 years, they're going to be around for more than 10 years, right? So you hear about these things where most businesses fail in their first two years. This doesn't apply to businesses in the stock market because stock businesses are big businesses, right? The flower shop on the corner of like Bathurst and Dundas does not have stocks in the stock market, right? The flower empire that has 600 stores all over America, they might have stocks in the stock market. So most of the companies in the stock market tend to be solid companies. There are still very high risk ones. And I recommend staying away from them in your early investment years. Pick companies you know and understand and can predict their outcomes. Mm. Okay. Um, uh, in the, just, a, just a quick wrap up. In the, the chat, the chat. Um, Roger has a question. Thank you for the general information. Uh, just a quick what are your top five ETFs that you are bullish on? Well, I don't know what the word bullish means, but okay. And uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts on NFTs? Ooh. Someone's going to ask what NFTs. Okay, so let's explain bullish and bearish. The terms that get thrown around a lot. They're, uh, they're buzzwords in the stock market. When a bull attacks, it raises its horns up. So if a bull is charging at you, it raise its horns up. So when someone says bull, they mean they think the market's going to go up. When someone says bear, it means they think the market's going to go down because a bear will strike down with its paws. Oh, so okay. Bull, horns are going up. Okay. When it says bear, paws are going down. I don't invest in a lot of ETFs. Um, if I was to pick an ETF um, right now, you know, full disclosure, I'm investing in one called QQQ and I'm losing money on it because I bought it at the wrong time. But three Q Q's just to be yeah okay that's the ticker name okay yeah but QQQ um, invests in kind of the top the top companies in the S and P five hundred so they basically just invest in like the ten biggest companies in America so what they invest in is kind of like Apple Amazon Microsoft I don't know if Tesla's in there but they're QQQ if you look up any ETFs on your trading platform you can find out exactly who they invest in and you can actually choose to invest directly in those companies or stick with the ETF. So I don't really have any ETFs that I'm bullish on because ETFs are slow growth. I don't invest in ETFs. I invest in direct in equities. The tips that I'm giving you guys are about how to evaluate a company at its core and decide if you want to invest. If you don't want to do that work, an ETF is a great way to balance your risk. Um, so again, the only ETF I'm actually in right now is QQQ, but I'm also invested directly in some of the companies that QQQ has holdings on. But QQQ just invests in like these really, really big companies. So I wouldn't expect any high growth from them. If you want to educate yourself on foreign markets, um, take a look at ETFs that invest in foreign markets. ETFs are a great way to invest in foreign markets that you don't have access to. You can find ETFs that invest in companies in Singapore, Brazil, Germany, but again, you're gonna to have to educate yourself on what's going on in those economies and those competitors and things like that. Um, and the next one was about NFTs. 
non-fungible tokens. So this this is this is <laughs> gambling again, right? So there's a new thing, relatively new. It's crypto, uh, not crypto. Yeah, it's crypto based. It's blockchain based. It's called NFTs. It's a digital token. Um, so it's this new thing that's come on the internet. I do not know if it's going to be around in a couple of years or not. So I wouldn't invest in it. Um, again, it's it's casino gambling. You're buying this digital item and hopes that someone else will buy it from you. I believe it's the biggest fool's gamble, right? So, and this is the same thing as GameStop and AMC, and that's why I'll bring it up. There's a there's a term, and I think it, I can't remember the exact term, but it's called the biggest fool's gamble. It's when you know you're doing something dumb, but you hope that you will find someone dumber than you that you can sell this to. Wow. Wow. This is the fool's gamble. You're walking in the forest and you find a pretty rock and you, and it's very heavy. And you're like, ah, if I pick up this rock, I'm going to have to carry this rock for days and it's going to break my back. This is a stupid idea, but I bet you I can find someone dumber than me who wants this big rock, right? That's what NFTs are. That's what GME was. That's what AMC was. Wow. Does not mean you cannot make money. It means that you're betting on finding a fool. That's Ooh. that's what it means, right? Um, the company GameStop is not worth the money that the stock is trading at, right? NFTs are basically little digital items that are not worth the money they're trading at. There's no utility value to them. You're basically buying a GIF or a meme, literally. So your favorite meme, um, one of my favorite GIFs is this one where like there's a penguin walking in the ice and another penguin slaps him and he falls through the ice. I've watched it 10,000 times. I laugh every time. I would not pay a million dollars for that GIF, but someone might. So, yeah. Oh, someone okay. Might. Right? So um, the, the GameStop and the AMC fiasco was just basically people thinking that they can find someone else. There was two sides to it. There was this kind of political movement where people were trying to screw Wall Street where they miserably failed at, they actually made Wall Street billions of dollars. They turned people into overnight billionaires because old money, long money always wins. Everybody who lost on that was early investors, new investors. Very few big investors lost on that, maybe a couple, but you I mean, if you have $10 billion and you lose a mill, I don't think you're going to lose sleep that night. So I don't think they made the point they wanted to make aside from showing that they had some power. Um, and then with NFTs, again, you're buying something that's essentially useless with the hopes that somebody else will buy it from you. Okay. Well, okay. damn. damn. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> okay. But, um, okay. Um, just gonna, to wrap. Yeah. Just to wrap this up, I just want to say thank you for both of you guys for um, Clap it up, clap it up. Coming here. Um, teach thank us you your for wisdom, having Vanessa. us. Thank you. For sure, for sure. Um, where can they find you guys? Uh, so you can find me on Instagram. If you have any mortgage real estate questions, my Instagram is at Jerome does mortgages. Um, my website is www.jeromesaintbernard.com. Um, I'm JS Holmes on Facebook, but the easiest way to reach me is just to follow me on Instagram. I'm always posting information about mortgages, uh, just tips on finance, budgeting, credit, those type of things, try to get you prepared to uh, step into the market. Okay. I mean, I don't, uh, I don't social media much uh, since I left comedy. Um, I used to Twitter, I used to YouTube, I used to other stuff, but now I don't. Um, if you look up Silva Gonzalez on LinkedIn, they'll find me. If they look up 
the Silverado on Instagram, T-H-E-S-I-L-V-A-R-A-D-O. They'll find me, but um, yeah, I don't really use the platforms that much, to be honest with you. I spend my time doing the things I've told you I focus on in the last two hours. Yeah. <laughs> That's what's up. That's what's up. And um, I just want to thank you guys once again for coming here. I know it's late. Um, thank you guys for taking the time and teaching us these things. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. Before I go, just a quick question. If anyone recorded this, would you mind sending it to me? My recording didn't work out so well. Of course. Uh, we'll of course, it's actually the... live on YouTube. YouTube. So, so we'll, I we'll send you the link. link. Oh, that's perfect. Please do. Thanks. Okay. Um, Thanks, so, um, yeah. Um, I just want to thank you guys for whoever's here still. Thank you guys for listening. Um, if you have any questions, send it to us at asktheven at gmail.com. And where the audio will be out on Tuesday on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, um, Stitcher. And yeah, um, this is the event. Thank you for listening and we out. Peace. Take yeah. care.